Lux Occult is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. When God decided to invent everything, he took one breath bigger than a circustant, and everything began. When man decided to destroy himself, he picked the was of shell and finding only why, smashed it into because. That was poem 77 from 100 Selected Poems by E.E. E. Cummings. And the music you just heard was some of The Haunting by my guest, Adam, a.k.a. Anne Historic. Hello and welcome to Luxacult. This is a podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and also discuss a variety of occult topics. I'm your host, Lux Estrada, and if you're hearing the sound of my voice, that means that this show, and magic for that matter, are for you, if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free, and using magic or making space for a spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree sometimes. How will we ever learn anything if we all agreed all the time? And like anybody should be who would attempt to be reasonable, I am willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. Alright, so I have a super dope episode for you here today. Um, this is with somebody that I have had the pleasure of working with on the Green Mushroom Project and whose work I really enjoy, um, Adam Matlock, also known as Anne Historic. You can find a link to his stuff in the show notes. Um, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. There's a broad spectrum of very cool and unique stuff. Uh, you can find that at Adam Matlock, that's A-D-A-M-M-A-T-L-O-C-K dot bandcamp dot com. So Adam was cool enough to share some of his stuff with me to play for you all during this episode. So the music that you will hear in this one, um, apart from the theme at the very beginning, will be by him. So I usually produce a little something to use for this purpose, but I'm stoked to showcase Adam's stuff. Plus, I've sort of been at the mercy of my creative urges when it comes to working on some other stuff, like some visual art and music stuff. So I kind of lost track of time, and this episode is going to be out a little bit later than I anticipated. Um, it's cool. It's fine. Uh, but many thanks to Adam for allowing me to lighten the production load in this manner. So before we dive into what is a very cool conversation, I would like to say thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me here on the show. Uh, the listeners are super fucking cool. Y'all are the best, and I'm very lucky to have you. So thank you. Um, I always welcome people's thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or arcane revelations. You can reach me at luxacultpod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Instagram at luxacultpod. 
trying not to use social media too much lately, um, but that definitely doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from you. And if you like the show and you're into what I'm doing, you can support it on Patreon. Um, and if you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me. There are no tiers or levels or anything, so give as you will. And thank you so, so much to everybody that's already doing so. Your support really means a lot, and it kind of makes the show possible, so thank you so much. Alright, so this is a dope conversation. We talk about all kinds of shit, you know, making music from a magical perspective, from a regular perspective. Um, Adam is a music teacher. He talks a lot about, like, some of the ideas that he has about teaching, which are really cool. We talk about hypersigils, process versus product chestnut trees, all kinds of dope stuff. Um, so this is going to be a rad one. Uh, and I think without further ado, let's just get on into it here. All right, this is my talk with Adam Matlock, aka An Historic. My guest today is Adam, also known as An Historic. Thank you so much for being on my show, dude. How are you? I'm doing super well. Thank you so much for having me. Fuck yeah. Super stoked to talk to you. So as is the tradition here, could you give us a little bit of like an intro and uh, tell us what you're into and what you're about? Sure. Well, okay. My name is Adam. Uh, I am in the world. I primarily move as a musician uh, and music teacher, um, but uh, this has kind of looped in in a lot of ways, philosophically and magically, to you know, to uh, like pre the practice part of my life. And uh, um, yeah, and I guess among other things, I'm also interested in uh, in sort of like permaculture and uh, have. Uh, you know, kind of like uh, con conservation and sustainability and, um, you know, sort of resilience in the face of climate change and all that stuff. So, yeah, but I guess musician is sort of like the the first thing that people would find when they Googled me. So I guess that's, uh, that's the main thing. Yeah. All right. Fuck yeah, dude. Maybe we should start out there then with the music. And I'm curious to hear about like your sort of, you know, musical journey and your magical journey and like where these intersected and where they departed and, and all of that. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, so I guess I started, I mean, I, get, I came from a somewhat musical family uh, in that both my parents were, um, you know, they were like acting in musical theater for a little bit before I was born. Uh, my mom was a dancer. My uh, dad, you know, like sang and very briefly played organ in a, you know, in a church and things like that. And, you know, so like there was, there was musical uh, elements in, in, uh, in my family growing up and my mom and her family, she, uh, she sang uh, like black American spirituals with her family growing up. And so that was like a big part of my early upbringing was kind of singing me's even before I, you know, really knew a lot about, um, music or history that much. But then, uh, you know, sort of paired with that, I was also kind of like taking piano lessons. Um, and I think that my mom really had a, a strong uh, kind of feeling that I was going to become a concert pianist. And that is uh, certainly not the case now, but, uh, <laughs> but I was pushed really heavily for, uh, you know, towards that from a young age. Uh, funny how those things kind of <laughs> sometimes don't quite manifest the way expected. But um, yeah, I don't know. So, you know, so I so from a pretty young age, like probably four or five, I was taking piano lessons. I was like 
studying with a pretty hardcore like Ukrainian teacher, you know, from like six to 12 or something like that. And she was from the Russian school. So, you know, it was like it was like a pretty serious part of my life, um, kind of whether or not I wanted it to be. And, you know, for the most part, I did really enjoy it. Um, but there was a lot of things about it that I didn't understand. Like, um, you know, there was music theory stuff that we like, you know, like didn't really cover in the lessons. And there was a, you know, there was a point where I kind of hit a wall because I wasn't reading very well, like reading music. And, and, you know, I did kind of pivot for a little while. Cause like I had a pretty good ear. I was kind of like playing stuff from video games, stuff from movies that I liked and like trying to pick that stuff out on the piano. But even that was really hard. Um, and so I kind of stopped taking lessons for a while in high school, which is a pretty common thing for, for boys to do at that, you know, at that age, I guess, like is to, you know, be too cool for the, the things that you were reasonably good at. Um, and then, you know, just kind of like throw those things out, you know, and, and like try and rebuild something else, I guess. So, um, so for a while I was just like trying to be, you know, like trying really hard to be like a, you know, kind of like social butterfly type and like really like all that stuff and just didn't really like give myself time to enjoy playing music for a long time. Um, but I still listened as a, you know, like still a very passionate listener and, uh, you know, had eventually like experiences as a passive listener that like were so emotional for me and so transformative for me that it kind of brought me back around to wanting to work with music again. And like, you know, I was still kind of playing piano a little bit um, on my own. Uh, but then I started composing at that time, too, because I, you know, I thought like, you know, if if such and such a CD has an effect, such an effect on me, you know, I would like to have that effect on other people sometimes. And so it was like, uh, you know, part of it was just like having that impact. Right. And, you know, I don't know if I was like thinking about sort of posterity or anything like that, but it was really just like, you know, like it would be really cool to like be able to have an impact on other people the way that some music has an impact on me. And sure. so I kind of found my way back to music while I was in college. Um, it kind of switched things around and like started doing composition, but it was at a liberal arts school. So like the, you know, the, um, the there was a couple of like rudiments that I missed, um, but I got some like super, some super deep uh, kind of like philosophy of music seminars and things like that. So that sounds rad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it'd been like balanced out in some, in some nice ways. Um, yeah. And uh, but yeah. And then um, like while I was doing that, I, you know, was like really only focusing on composition and not really very much on, on playing or performing. Um, and then, you know, when I was getting ready to, to do a final project, like I had a whole bunch of musicians quit on me and I had like a deadline to make. So kind of rearranged everything and played everything myself to the, the best of my very basic abilities at the time. Cause I, you know, it had been a couple of years without really seriously practicing. And that was like enough of a reason that was like an empowering enough experience to get me to come back to playing music and, um, you know, I was also kind of had picked up accordion around that time and was playing folk music. And so when I left school, I was like thinking of myself as like a, you know, badass capital C composer and, you know, like, which, you know, and I don't really know exactly what that means now, but like, <laughs> you know, it, it meant something at the time to me. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, and like, wasn't, it, it, you know, sort of realized very quickly that like, you know, because I don't have, you know, like connections to a university or like, I'm not doing going to do grad school at this point that like, if I want my music to be played, I have to play it, or I at least have to play mm -hmm. part of it. And so that really led me back to, uh, you know, to, to performing and like to in, like a really serious instrumental practice that has been, you know, sort of in process ever, ever since then. Um, 
uh, with, you know, certainly a couple things I got for free from having done all that as a kid, but you know, a lot of things I had to relearn too. So. Uh, okay. Yeah. I love how, you know, you kind of came full circle with it. Like, that's very cool. Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, and like it, it well, it was, I don't know. It's interesting. Cause like when you come back to some of this stuff as an adult, like, you know, I work, I'm, I'm a music teacher among other things. I, um, you know, I, I work with both adult and child students. And one of the things that I notice working with adult students is that, you know, maybe their brains are less plastic, you know, there's, it's like harder to pick up certain muscle memory type things, but, you know, the analytical understanding of things of like why you do things, why you do scales, why you do, you know, things that are boring and, and are no fun, you know, it's like, it makes so much more sense. And so like, you know, they can have much more patience for that kind of thing than a younger student who like, you know, is really gifted and get something really quickly. And, you know, so so I think like coming back to it as an adult, like really gave me a lot of empathy for, you know, the people who have to really work hard for it. Like, it, you know, it's the sort of like, like people talk about the difference between sort of being talented and working hard, you know, and like, and this, I think especially that can be the case in magic too, is that like, there are some people who are very naturally gifted with some aspects of these things and, um, you know, but. And, and that can cause you to kind of burn out on things, you know, if, if there, there's not a challenge, you know, in a way. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the pacing or, or the converse, if things are, oh, sorry, I was oh, no, no, like, or the converse, if things are too easy, like, and you um, encounter something that presents a challenge and you're not used to challenges, you might just give up right away or like, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so, you know, if that's a, that's a very long pedagogical, uh, uh, kind of uh, tangent we could go on there, but uh, <laughs> absolutely. If it if it comes, I'm, I'm not going to fight it. So, <laughs> yeah. But that's you know that's kind of it. And then you know I think like in the years since that point, and so you know as I've sort of gotten more of a performance practice sort of back under my belt, and like I'm playing more and you know, writing more and things like that. Um, you know, one of the things that happened about six years ago was you know sort of me rediscovering this this. Um, very nerdy style of music called dungeon synth, um, which is uh, officially sort of like known as a, as a sort of subgenre or side genre of black metal, um, you know, which is a, you know, very controversial genre that a lot of people like, you know, even if they don't like the music, they kind of know about it because there are some famous kind of like, you know, very yes, there are some court in, uh, cases and yeah. murder trials surrounding uh, right. some, yeah, I think people are so okay so tell me about what is it dungeon dungeon core dungeon synth um dungeon yeah so synth, it, sorry. it was uh no no it is, it, <laughs> how, dare, how dare you yeah no if if i if i played had played this music for six years and didn't have a sense of humor about it like i would be a much more miserable person so but i mean that's kind of it right is that like you know the the kind of one of the founders of the genre was a guy who like when he was 19 was kicked out of a really famous black metal band and then he like invested in like troll prosthetics and like started doing these really elaborate photo shoots with like skull cod pieces and like you know his elaborate makeup and uh Wait, is this like guar or something uh similar uh guar Jason. His, his name is mortis um okay. and, you know and, and it's like it's synth you know kind of like uh it's, you know it sounds like i guess uh, i don't know video game music uh like from uh, I don't know, like 90s role-playing games is a good kind of like, uh, you know, it's a good sort of frame of reference, I guess, or like, you know, like stereotypical medieval music that you might hear at like a Renaissance fair. Is it like kind of like bit tune? Is, I've, I've heard, a little I don't know, more... I'm not great at t the taxonomy of musical genres. And that's, <laughs> yeah, and that's totally okay. I mean, it tends to be like more lo-fi than that and like a little less twitchy, I guess. Like it's okay, more, more okay. ambient, uh, more atmospheric. 
Um, and a lot of times it's like sort of about either, you know, medieval times or fantasy worlds. Like it's inspired, a lot of it is inspired by Tolkien or like, you know, people would make up their own kind of fantasy worlds and just sort of set the music in there and like, you know, sometimes come up with stories and stuff to go along with it. Very cool. All right. So just real quick, like, you know, um, we can talk all we want about this, but would it be okay if I played some for people right now and that way they could have a little context? That is a very good idea. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Fuck yeah. Hey, future Alexa here. Okay, so what you're hearing right now is actually not by Adam, but it's something that Adam wanted me to share as a representation of the genre. Uh, this is Another World, Another Time by Erang. Also, sorry for lying earlier when I said all the music in this episode would be by Adam. Apologies. So I think, you know, a lot of people who do this kind of stuff like are, you know, very into performative things and very into kind of like either atavism or, you know, or like escapism or something like that. Um, and, you know, so there's like kind of a natural overlap. And so when I started working with this, you know, I wasn't, I didn't like, I wasn't really cultivating my magical practice at the time. Like it was still there in the back burner and like the way of that way of thinking about things was there. But it was really kind of like through working on this music and kind of getting immersed in this aesthetic a little bit that, you know, it kind of, it sort of made more sense that the music that I was doing had um, kind of a mystical connection. And, you know, I think it may have started out as just like, that's how I'm going to advertise it. Like, you know, this is how I'm, what I'm going to write about it. Like, this is my, you know, mystical ritual from, you know, Conjured at Midnight in the, the blackest <laughs> depths of whatever, you know, but then it like it in a way I sort of like talked myself into it. And yeah, so like having that as a way, as a really direct connection between my very latent magical practice at the time and my ongoing musical practice, like that was a really kind of like significant marriage at that point, I guess. So. All right. Fuck yeah. So I want to circle back just real quick to your, your teaching, mm -hmm. you know, like as a teacher of music, like you're giving people this like gift of music. And I'm curious about like what that means to you, like philosophically, if you wouldn't mind sharing any thoughts about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so sometimes like I, you know, I think, well, so like, I guess teaching is a really good example of, or it's a really good way to sort of observe change over time. Like, you know, if we're, t if we're talking about like changes in the abstract, right? Like, you know, unless if they're embodied within your person or within the person of someone that you interact with on a regular basis, whether it's a weekly lesson or somebody you're in a relationship or whatever, like it can be really hard to like notice those changes, right? Like you see them like in stages, but like to see it happen gradually is like a little harder to, to notice, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, that's one of the things that I, that makes me the most grateful for teaching is that like, as a way of observing human behavior and how humans learn in, and like the lots of different ways that humans learn, like that is like the biggest value add, you know, to use like bullshit corporate speak. Like to me, that's like <laughs> one of the best things about teaching is that like, I get this opportunity, you know, five, six days a week to, you know, to, to do that and like to watch people learn and then to help guide it, you know? 
and you know there's there's something like very special about that you know and and i think in a one-on-one setting it's easier to appreciate that than like you know in the times when i've been a classroom teacher because it's just you know there's so much going on and you know it's really can can really be hard to um to track changes in that same way you know so yeah so i think that's you know that's one aspect of it i mean you know i I think that sometimes i will look at the things that i've said to a student and think oops i just like gave them magical advice but i didn't say any of the words that would you know be like like call it uh cause it to be clocked as such you know but um but you know I, i i do feel that like there is a lot of that that kind of stuff when you're thinking about you know, how you play something, how you learn something like, you know, the minute angles that you're holding your wrist as you, you know, as you approach the keyboard or something like that, and how that makes something possible that wasn't possible before, you know, it's like really like metacognition type stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and like, you know, so then you're kind of like, you get the opportunity to talk people through this kind of metacognition, which is so, so rewarding and also frustrating. And, you know, it has, it's like, it's a, it's a little bit of everything. Right. But ultimately it's rewarding for me because like, you know, you get, you just get to see these values and these processes unfold over time in a way that is, yeah, I don't know. It's just to me, like I, I, I um, am, feel very lucky to be able to do it. Let's put it that way. So. Fuck yeah. That's dope, dude. Hell yeah. Okay. So, you recently went on a tour and I'm super curious to hear how it went. <laughs> I yeah. saw pictures. It looks like you had a fucking awesome time. Very cool. But yeah. Yeah. Well, so um, I was recently on tour with um, the musician Anthony Braxton, um, who is a you know kind of like an elder statesman in the sort of like jazz, creative music, improvised music worlds, um, you know, which... Uh, Again, more taxonomy stuff, but like, you know, basically like free jazz is a good touchstone, but it isn't the only one for for the kinds of things that he does. And so it was playing in a trio with him. Um, he's a saxophonist um, and then with a trumpeter from Portugal uh, named um, Susana Santos Silva and, uh, and myself. And I was playing accordion and uh, doing vocals. Uh, and then we the music that we did had, um, you know, sort of electronics that uh, that Anthony Braxton uh, programmed uh, on a program called Super Collider, where it basically like live reacts to the sounds that we make. So using the computer's microphone, it'll, you know, it'll generate these random kind of electronic tones based on the sounds that we're playing um, and a couple of other parameters. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've, I have, uh, I like, I'm not a super, like tours like this are probably like the the farthest I've gotten from home as a musician. Like I'm not one of those people who spent all of my twenties in a touring van, you know, like going around the country and stuff like that. I played a lot of DIY shows, but they were all local or most of them were. So like, you know, tours like this are very out of the ordinary in my understanding of what touring is because it's, you know, mostly it's more grueling than, than what we did. But that being said, you know, like when you're traveling with um, someone who's in his seventies and, you know, who is like, yeah, I don't know how to say it. Like at this point in the world, international travel is like ridiculously complicated for COVID mm-hmm. reasons. 
Um, And there's a serious question as to how many of those regulations are actually benefiting people. But that's probably another question uh, just because they're super. Yeah, there's all kinds of confusion surrounding all that stuff, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there absolutely is like I know that I filled out like a lot of job application length uh, locator forms every time I went into a new country and like then nobody would check them. So, you know, it was that that kind of thing. Yes. Like, but um <laughs> love bureaucracy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean it's yeah, it was really just like a sea of red tape, right? So mm. and you know, all that all that to say, you know, was that like you know, that that part was mildly frustrating. And of course, like traveling uh, you know, now is um like harder to do just because there's like less chances. I don't know. It's like even even in within Europe, it's like harder to get from country to country, I think now. Mm. That being said, you know, it was a super awesome experience. We did um, two shows in October and then four in November. And it was, you know, it was all new music that um, Anthony had written for this tour. Um, And it was a system that he calls the Lorraine Musics. And uh, when I asked him about it, uh, you know, he said it came to him in a dream. Like that's, uh, and he's (laughs) like, the best things do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, like this, at at this point, uh, like I have worked with him. A handful of times over the last probably five years, I guess, like, you know, and, and so I know to expect things like that, but there is really a thread in that era of like American creative music where there's like a real mystical element that is not super well acknowledged because the sounds were so innovative. And so I think that like, you know, because it was music like the likes of which people had not really heard before, people didn't really focus on like what other stuff was going on there. Like the fact that so many of these folks were like legit philosophers and like, you know, and mystics in a lot of ways. And like, you know, I I don't know if you're uh, like familiar with the musician Sun Ra. Uh, You know, he was like a a keyboardist who like kind of ran a cult and, you know, kind of like um, saw himself as like a reincarnated, you know, Egyptian god. (laughs) Hence the name. <laughs> right. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of like cool, cool. I mean, to me, they're, you know, they're cool, but I think, you know, they also inform the music too. Right. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it's hard to to look at that music without engaging with that stuff as much as people want to do that sometimes, you know, but that mystical aspect is, you know, it's messy as with every chapter in history, like that stuff is messy. It is not super well-defined. Sometimes it's a little misogynist. Sometimes, it, you know, it has its like trappings, right. You know, as, mm-hmm. as, ev- you know, stuff from every era does, but, it, you know, I think it has to be engaged with, you know, if you're going to be looking at that stuff um, just because, like, you know, you can only talk about vibration as a principle of physics so often, but like when you use that word, the way these folks were using that word, like, you know, there's something else to it. You know, it's not just about Hertz and, and cycles and stuff like that and beats, you know, like it really is like, you know, there's, there's some intent and there's some element there that, yeah, I don't know, is, is kind of very firmly in the mystical, I guess. So. That makes sense. So in order to like actually appreciate it and engage, you have to like engage with it on like a holistic level. I think so. I mean, I'm there and I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree with that, but you know, that's. Well, teach their own. People should listen to music however it suits them. But yes, I hear what you're saying about, I like to try to like appreciate things on multiple different levels. And so like, yeah, having the context in which it existed and was created and all that stuff is, I think it's enriching to it. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, like I'm, I'm the kind of curious person where like if I hear or watch or, you know, see something that I'm really engaged with, like I will, you know, I will 
find out as much as I can about it, you know, like, you know, I'll Google it and, you know, read every article I can find or <laughs> I can find or something. So millions of Wikipedia rabbit holes. <laughs> yep. Yes, definitely. So, so where did y'all go exactly? Um, so the first leg we were in uh, Latvia and then the Czech Republic. And then the second leg we were in Germany, Portugal, Spain, and Luxembourg. Dope. Yeah. And so like, you know, a lot of, yeah, I mean, you know, mostly like kind of bigger, bigger cities with like music scenes and with, you know, with clubs and stuff that were open in Spain, it was like a little college town, you know, kind of like right by um, um, Cadiz, which is like the the port that goes to Morocco, I guess. So, um, you know, pretty far south. And like, it was pretty wild to be walking around in a t-shirt one day and then, you know, <laughs> getting into um, a much more northern country like the day after. So Yeah. Okay, so when you were on this like, you know, journey, this wild adventure, was there anything that happened that you thought was like super funny? <laughs> uh, so many things. I mean, <laughs> like um I mean among other things, you know, like Anthony is a, is a tremendously funny guy. Uh, you know, he's 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 got like very much like dad jokes, but you know, they're they're <laughs> like super well-meaning and like and when he gets on a kick, like it's it's hilarious. So like I you know, I heard some great stories that he told about, you know, his youth growing up and like, you know, his time in the army and you know, some of them are are like pretty fraught and pretty hairy and stuff, but like he's you know, he's like just as a storyteller, it's great to like, you know, hear some from that era of you know of the music business and the music scene and he's you know he's had some much crazier tour stories than we ever had um you know and but you know there's always something that'll remind him of uh you know like getting scammed in italy in 1971 or something like that you know (laughs) things along those lines so very cool (laughs) yeah yeah it sounds like i think it would be really fun to like travel with somebody like that that has been around for a long time and has all these like stories and like yeah that's really cool yeah i mean like if you're especially if you're into like the history of jazz which you know i i am i'm not as aggressively into it as some people are who work with him a or who you know who are his (laughs) aggressively into it (laughs) like you know, it's, it's important to me. And like, sure. and I, it's like, I couldn't like sing you, you know, John Coltrane's second solo on whatever, you know, 1962 recording, you know, like, I'm not an encyclopedia in that way. But for people who are right, like, and, you know, and I certainly appreciate that it was like, great to hear some like little bits of just like, the people that he knew by name, you know, and like, so like, literally just one generation removed from like, some of the greatest musicians like or you know one degree removed i guess like you know mm-hmm. and like you know from from like people who have changed millions of lives uh you know for other musicians and for listeners and stuff like that and so like the importance of that was not lost on me i guess so yeah. very cool was there anything that happened that was like super scary mm, not scary uh i mean in two cases like my bags got lost twice um the second oh, time man. everybody's bags got lost um, that sucks. <laughs> so I, you know, I found myself like gathering offerings, like near hotel rooms to like, you know, just like see if I could help grease the wheel at all to get, get them back. But, um, it, you know, really like not scary, just mildly frustrating. And okay. I'm a fairly patient person, you know, when it comes to mild inconveniences and I know other people like have a much shorter fuse about that sort of thing. So, 
you know, I get to be like the, the tour mom, I guess, like, you know, in those moments, <laughs> like when everybody else is like on the verge of like going to speak someone about this thing. And it's like, you know, really nobody can do anything about it. You know, like there's, there's two staff in this airport or something, you know, just like, like really, you know, just like things that like, really there's, you know, there's, it's beyond anybody's ability, you know? So like mm-hmm. it was, it was a very good, uh, uh, practice at uh, disengaging with things like that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that traveling definitely can teach a person to be patient. <laughs> yeah, or it or it can reward you for being a jerk, right? You know, which is sure, in one some of those flip sides is that like, you know, if you elbow your way to the front of the line, like, you know, whether it's for your COVID test to get back into the States or like just to get off the plane, like, you know, that'll get you out of the plane first, you know? And like, for the most part, that's like, you know, it's, it's very like survival of the fittest out there and that, and because like flying, I mean, commercial travel is such a, you know, yeah, such a Darwinist industry, I guess. Like it's, you know, it's like, you don't get rewarded for being timid when you're in airports, except by like being slightly less stressed as a baseline. So. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. Yeah. I think you're right. Unfortunately, (laughs) it would be nice if it were more chill, but that seems accurate. (laughs) Which is why we should probably throw the whole industry out, but that's me, you know, so. (laughs) Yes. We can go into that another time. I wanted to uh, actually, this is um, adjacent to that though. Um, Mm -hmm. You had mentioned sort of like this idea about, you know, how important, you know, ecology is to you. I share this passion um, and I wanted to ask you about the project um, Ecophony. Okay, yeah. Um, well, that was, let's think. Okay, so um, that was probably the first time I had really set out to make an audio sigil in a way. And there have been lots of elements of sigil work in other music that I have done before this, but like this was the first time really start to finish that was sort of the intent. It was like before I hit record, I was thinking this is going to be a sigil towards X desire or X desired result or something like that. And, you know, I was, I'm sort of like have variously over the course, especially of the last two years, you know, when like being cooped up and spending too much time on social media is like a feeling like pretty hopeless about climate related stuff. And I think, you know, that really kicked into overdrive for me, like even, excuse me, even the spring, I, um, it happened like, you know, kind of before even like the, whatever the, um, the report, the international uh, panel IPCC report. Yeah like came out this summer. And so, you know, that was like when it was really in the height for me, it was this spring was like, I was like, you know, oh my gosh, like we're not like, a lot of good news. Yeah. And uh, so in that sort of moment of helplessness, I guess, like that was sort of what I turned to. And, it, you know, of course it wasn't the only thing I'm still like kind of trying to do kind of local advocacy in the town I live in, um, you know, for more community gardens, more kind of like getting trend trying to get people to replace lawns if they have the option, that sort of thing, you know, but that's like, it's not really like organized activism. It's just like, I talk to people about it when I feel like they won't run away from that conversation. So, yeah, I mean, and we can do a lot of that stuff too, but like, there's also this um, component of the fact that it's not really individuals that are causing a lot of this stuff. It's like uh, these huge entities, these, right? So it's a whole tangled web. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no. I mean, I think so. You're absolutely right about that. And I also feel that like 
I don't ever want to get into the into the position that there is literally nothing that I can do because Exxon is such a shit or because, yeah. you know, these companies. That's, that's a great point, dude. Yeah. That to me is like, that's that's where the helplessness like really compounds. You've already given up. Yeah. Yeah. So like, even if it's like planting a four by four strip, you know, replacing it from grass to like native plants or something like that, you know, like that has a infinitesimal, you know, like like a small Im- impact but then you know if a neighbor does that or two neighbors do it or five neighbors do it then like that creates like you know impacts on the level of microclimate like especially when you start planting in shrubs and trees and stuff so no you're totally right dude and even just doing that one plot for yourself it might have an infinitesimal you know impact in general but it might have a huge impact on your own psychological well-being which also is yes. important so, yeah yes. right and and yes and that so that part especially for me too um and i think you know like as as i have been doing this work more and like you know kind of especially like just in my own yard like that the ability to have a magical conversation with a place has really kind of evolved i guess and you know some of it was like reading stuff that suggested that that might be a thing that you could do even if you don't believe that anybody is listening or anything is listening you know you just like talk to the plants in your yard talk to the bugs whatever but like i'm i'm into that and like you know what i have found is that it it has like grounded me a ton and i feel like it i have like had a really like a deepening relationship and a deepened sense of place um which is something that you know, is is very easy to take for granted, I guess, in our culture. So yeah, that's dope, dude. a little bit more on like what this practice like looks like well, i mean it, it's evolving I and mean, like in the last couple months it's been like you know once a week giving a little offering of coffee to the yard you know when i'm out in the yard just like speaking to plants and insects that i encounter trying to i guess like you know when you're when you're thinking about the language that you use to talk about inanimate things like just trying to be aware of that you know am i and and you know not just like the use of pronouns like you know like you know am i saying it or am i saying he or she or you know or whatever like but like you know i think also that like i feel like it it has like really sort of like just forced me to observe things a little bit differently just to to see it as an intelligence even if it is just an instinctual intelligence like doing a thing rather than just an annoying thing that gets in my way right like you know this stick is in my way or something i don't know yeah dude that's fucking i fucking love it dude that's dope and actually it makes a perfect sense what you're saying like it go it touches back on something that you said earlier like about you know like it sort of started out for you like with the whole like music thing about like oh maybe this is just a sort of like cloak that i'm putting on it but then in wearing this cloak you become the thing right and like yeah, yeah so here it's like you know you're speaking to this place and like through this process like it can start to speak back to you maybe i i mean i absolutely think so and you know like as with divination as with any of these things right you know it could be just that i'm having conversations with my subconscious but like that's still useful too you know like we don't really understand like 
much about consciousness, so who knows what's right. going on there, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, just as far as like, you know, the environmental, I mean, I don't know, like I, you know, I feel I am not, I don't consider myself a druid. I, you know, however, I did certainly look into it after hearing your, um, your set of interviews with Dave from early on in your podcast. So yes, shout out to Dave from Everything Paranormalcy. Hell yeah. Yeah, no, I see. I mean, he, he made a great case for it, I'll, you know, and, 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 but also listening to that, I realized like, you know, how many things in the Druid tradition I sort of did, uh, but maybe didn't have a name for, or, you mm. know, that sort of, or didn't have language for that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I found that about the Druid tradition too. It's a little bit, I don't really like need all that structure and stuff, but like some mm-hmm. of the ideas in it, I think are super dope and I've incorporated them and or found like, you know, intersections with stuff I was already doing. So fuck sure. yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, same, same, like the, the kind of more I've found out, you know, sort of just both from Dave and then also kind of like reading on my own, you know, there are like lots of things that resonate and like, I'm not like rushing off to pay my dues, but like, I, you know, I will always kind of keep some of those things in mind. I feel like, you know. Yeah. So. Fuck yeah. Okay. So circling back to Ecophony, like, this was an audio sigil that, but like, I'm kind of curious about like how this was produced. Um, so it was recorded onto a four track cassette machine. I guess that's like, you know, from, for the technical standpoint, that's like the reason why it sounds the way it does, which is like kind of scratchy and hissy and lo-fi. Um, but it's I, very spooky. It's like a very haunting piece. Oh, thank you. Um, I like it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's, yeah, it's not inherently, but uh, I, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I think like it kind of started out with the idea of just kind of doing stuff with my voice and I guess like to, to take it way back, like when I was first kind of getting into magic or occultism or, you know, kind of like exploring that stuff, what I found is that using my voice as a way of connecting to that and not words like, or, you know, like distinct language, but just like kind of dealing with sub-vocal sounds, uh, you know, like things that are way in the back of your throat, things that like don't seem to like fully escape out of your mouth, I guess is the best way to describe it. Like, you know, that that was like a huge part of it. And just like it felt like it was tapping into something really kind of strong for me. And so while I was working on this, um, you know, this this record, I mean, like that's really where it started. It was like, you know, I just like kind of started recording some vocal sounds and then I started, you know, kind of playing with some mantra uh, techniques, like, you know, kind of like, I forget if this was Spare who came up with that, but like, you know, just basically instead of making a pictorial sigil, like kind of just rearranging the letters into something that becomes a mantra Mm -hmm. Um, and just using that as kind of like ways to inform the sounds and the syllables that I was making. And, you know, so I used, I recorded like a couple layers of that, like kind of all in one day and then, uh, you know, kind of let it sit for a while, um, just kind of decided whether I was still liking it, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, and then came back to it and added some some like instrumental, some some drones on accordion, like after after the fact, just because it felt like it was needing something a little bit more, I guess, you know, after after a couple of months of letting it sit for, um, you know, and, and chill out. So, dude, I do the same thing when I'm producing a track sometimes, like I'll like, get to a point with it where I'm like, OK, I fucking hate you and I never want to see you again. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come back to it a little bit later. I'm like, hey, you're not so bad. Let's finish you up. 
<laughs> so, so there, I mean, that may be like mix fatigue, I feel like, or like headphone okay. fatigue or something like that, you know, which is just like when you've been listening, you to just the same hear it too many times and you're like, yeah, okay, just like okay yeah. Carbon, you know? <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's a real thing, you know, that I would, you know, that can, that can make you throw out good shit, you know, which mm. I've done before is like, I get, I just like mix something to death and it's like, man, this is garbage and it's irredeemable. And then like, you know, it turns out like my ears were just tired and I'd been doing it for six hours, you know, and like, yeah. Yeah. So. The, yeah. I'm the, like super new to all this stuff. So that's very valuable information to to have. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just like, I guess, you know, if you have like, uh, like monitors, like good speakers rather than headphones to mix on sometimes, like that's a good thing to to do to just like save your ears a little bit. So mm. uh, yeah, just cause like, you know, the frequencies like get like all up in your ears and like it, it can be hard to perceive things exactly as they are. So yeah and if you're like using a lot of like binaural shit you're like that's like a big dose of that over a long time so yeah that makes a lot of sense sure yeah Hey, what's up? It's Luxa from the future here. We're going to be going ahead and getting into the bibliomancy break in just a few minutes, as well as diving into some stuff about hypersigils and the Green Mushroom Project and a lot more. A bit later, the Green Mushroom Project is a large-scale group working that you can be a part of. Check out the show notes for more info about that. But before we get back into my conversation with Adam, I'd like to play you some of his rad mushroom-themed music. So this is the track abortive entoloma or entoloma abortivum from the album mycologia sorry if i said that wrong adam all right so we'll be getting right back into the interview after this track i hope you enjoy
Yeah. So actually, one of the things that came up on this tour that I was on was that I was um, there was an engineer who traveled with us, and he was there to sort of record the the performances. And you know, I got the chance to kind of like talk shop with him a couple of times when we were in these long lines, and uh, and he gave me some really great advice and insight on this because that's primarily what he does. Like he, you know, he like trained as a saxophonist when he was younger, but he thinks of himself like primarily as an engineer, as a mixing person. And like his approach to that as a as an engineer is very different than somebody who is also a musician doing it. I believe him when he says that like his uh, his ability to perceive audience impact on a thing is always going to be better than the musician who made it because he didn't play a note of what was on the album. And, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense to me. Like, you know, and I think it you know, we're in the, in the sort of like DIY age of music where like people are kind of expected to have all these skills anyway, that like you're expected to be able to mix and master all your stuff. And like, in some cases, like that's just not a good idea, you know, like whether or not you know what you're doing, like, you know, it it can just be really hard to get an objective picture on it. Yeah. People don't typically edit their own writing for a reason, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, at least not if they, I don't know, you shouldn't always edit your own writing. Have somebody else look at it because your brain knows what it's supposed to say, not what it actually says since you wrote it. So, yes. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, you know, maybe, what is it? Was it like Kerouac or somebody said like, write drunk, edit sober or something like that. So maybe there's like some ways to sneak around that. Yeah, that's like two different people. No. Yeah. Right. (laughs) At what cost? At what cost? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well. How do you feel about taking a bibliomancy break? Sure, I'm super into it. All right, fuck yeah. All right, Adam, welcome to the bibliomancy break. Do you have a question? I do. I should ask first, do you have a D4 and a D8? Uh, I have neither of those things, so I... That is okay. I have both of them. (laughs) Yes, please ask the question. Okay, so my question is, how far will I have to go to plant a chestnut tree? Hmm. All right, interesting question. Let's see what text we will consult here. Okay, it's going to be item one from table one, which is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Hmm. Let me find it. I'll be right back here. Okay. All right, I have located it. This is Sun Tzu, The Art of Warfare. And there's also some commentary in this edition. So we'll see what we get here. Oh, Eris. How far will Adam, also known as Anhistoric, have to go to plant a chestnut tree? All right. This is from the classic of the 32 Ramparts. Redeploy the army and redistribute the banners in response to the enemy's intentions. Move the troops under a cloak of silence into their battle formation and lay detachments in ambush. If the enemy is last to arrive at the battlefield, be the first to launch an attack. If you use this battle strategy, you will defeat him. Hmm. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Eris. Thank you, Eris. I feel like I'm missing some context here. Um, Well, I mean... I think the the general question is sort of as stands, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I am very interested in like, I've been following this account on Twitter called Build Soil, Plant Chestnuts. And it's like, you know, does a really good job of advocating for like why chestnuts are 
you know, going to help fix, you know, it's not that simple, right? It's like, but basically like why chestnuts are really good for ecosystems, why they're a good sort of stable crop or protein containing crop, um, you know, which if our food system breaks down, you know, we'll be really happy to have in 10 years or something. So, Hmm. and theoretically they start bearing within five years or something like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I've been, that's something I've been thinking about, but of course they're, you know, they're huge when they're fully grown and, and they have burrs and all that stuff. So like, you can't just plant them anywhere as much as I would love to just like scatter them up and down the sidewalk strips in my neighborhood. But, uh, you know, so I guess I'm waiting for the opportunity, but it's funny that it was the art of war because I spent a lot of time reading that book and then like the way of the samurai uh, when I was in high school, because I was that kind of nerd then. So uh, kind of <laughs> takes me back awesome. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's definitely stuff about like strategically staging things, which yeah. I think is sort of what you're talking about. Um, and then also showing up first. Yeah. Maybe there's some opportunities there of like, you know, places that um, have been disturbed that are, are looking for, for new uh, things to come in or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 to me, that seems like it could be, you know, how reticent people are for certain types of things, especially like alternatives to lawns, as I've noticed, right? Like until they see what it actually looks like, because a lot of people will imagine one thing and they'll think, oh, it looks like a jungle. It looks like urban, you know, urban blight or blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and like there are so many ways to do it, but like they have the one sort of platonic ideal in their minds and that's all they think of when they hear the phrase. And so they're opposed to it based on that one image that comes to their mind right so like maybe if you do it first and show them what else it could look like or what else it could be or why it would be useful you know maybe that i don't know yeah. all right fuck yeah Okay, so before we started recording, you were talking a little bit about this like concept of gullibility as it pertains to magic. And I was hoping that we could touch a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, well, I'd, yeah. So I guess I would describe myself as a very gullible person and, you know, have always kind of been that way. Like, you know, I was the kind of kid who like got in trouble in third grade because somebody told me that like, you know, when you showed somebody your middle finger, like you had to point it at them. And so if you pointed it at the sky, you were safe. Right. So then like I got in trouble for flipping somebody (laughs) off, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, So like, you know, it was, it was pretty easy to exploit for that sort of reason. But, you know, I, what that also meant, you know, was like, I had a, like a real, like unsquashable belief in something more, you know, something supernatural, whatever it was like, and this was kind of cultivated in a way by, like, it's funny, like my, you know, my, my father is like, you know, more when I was growing up, he was like more actively Christian. He's not really very much anymore. Um, you know, but he like, he was much more rational always about that sort of thing. And my mom was always much more like, how can I cultivate the sense of magic of being a kid? Um, and so like, I remember, you know, one time, like we were going on a family trip after a piano lesson. And then she told me that like, she had, you know, we'd, uh, like forgotten our bags or something. And so like, you know, but like, if you pray really hard, then maybe the bags will turn up. And then, so I like kind of did during that lesson. And then like, you know, she opens the trunk and she's like, Oh, look, the bags are here. Like, you know, and just, like wanted me to think <laughs> it was a miracle. a miracle. And I was like, yeah, okay, you know, I'll go with that. Like I, cool. you know, I'm kind of into that. So yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, and that, 
and of course, like that is 100% the sort of thing that like ends people up in cults or getting, you know, getting scammed or whatever. And so like, I recognize that that is a, you know, a thing that if you're going to cultivate it, you have to do it really carefully. And, you know, mm. there have been a number of times when I have like, you know, suffered the bad consequences of that, but I, you know, I kind of wouldn't trade it for the world in a way because like, I feel like it, it, it has sort of taught me some, something about, I don't know, like I, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of like sort of active versus passive desire or magic or, you know, or what have you. And I think that like kind of being gullible and sort of like being willing to believe things like, you know, whether it's sort of like the, you know, fake it till you make it kind of attitude of like, you know, talking to your plants or, you know, or, or what have you, or like just, you know, like whatever sort of like is in your, your sort of framework and like embracing like, you know, truly the ridiculous aspects of it as much as like the ones that are more rational or the ones that, you know, that you could explain away with modern science or whatever, like, you know, I'm kind of, kind of into that, that element of it. And I feel like that, you know, kind of embracing that gullibility is kind of a, it's kind of a key to that, or it has been for me. Um, you know, I feel a lot of like, yeah, I don't, I guess like the best analogy that I, that I sort of can, can think of is that like, you know, this, this idea of like product versus process. And, you know, so I think that like, like, I guess gullibility is sort of like getting, is like allowing yourself to get lost in the process of what you're doing to some degree. I can think of another good example. Like, uh, you know, I was playing a show recently and it was in a venue that looked a little bit different than, you know, than it had uh, months, a couple of years ago. Like, you know, it's like kind of a collective of folks moved in and like cleaned it up and like, you know, been start hosting shows at it again. And that's been really cool. And so like there was this corner of the room, you know, in a room that I've played in probably like 100 times over the last 12 years, you know, that I'd never seen before because like there was no longer a big pile of crates or dusty books in front of it. And so like I saw this kind of mirror out of the corner of my eye while I was playing and out of the corner of my eye, it looked like there was a whole other doorway to another room that I had never been into before, despite having, you know, played at this venue, you know, so many times in the last however many years. And like, until like I turned my head fully to confirm that it was a mirror, there was that moment where the possibility existed that just for 10 years, I had just not missed, you know, I just not seen the third room in this place. Right. Um, yeah. Very house of leave vibes there. This door just appears. Oh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, but, but like, that was like, I almost didn't want to confirm it, you know, in a way, like mm -hmm. it was almost mm -hmm. better not knowing. And, you know, so like for a moment while I was playing, I was like playing as though I was hearing sounds from this other room that maybe didn't exist, you know? And like, that was just like a weird kind of like headspace to kind of slip into. I fucking love that too. That's so dope. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. So like that, and that to me, like, I don't know that, I don't know if that's a good explanation of it, but like that to me is the best example of how it kind of has come into play for me. Yeah, I think it's like a sort of maybe like a type of openness or passivity or whatever, like where you're disengaging with some of the like the critic, the critical thinker the, and letting the information come through a little bit more unobstructed. And and with it, there can be these like, you know, uh, intuitions or, or whatever it can be like, I don't know, that's uh, or, or just an experience like it could just be a mistake that results in an interesting experience or perception mm -hmm. but but yeah being open to that and i guess that is a sort of like form of gullibility i'm wondering too like when you were saying about gullibility i wonder what relationship it has with honesty i wonder if people who are honest are more gullible because they don't expect lies because it's not like a trade they deal in as much or like i don't know i'm 
yeah, confused that, now, but I think there might be something there. <laughs> I mean, I think you you know you're you're definitely right. I mean, I feel like that's you know when someone I don't know was it P.T. Barnum said like there's a sucker born every minute like that's probably what they're talking about. It's like you know really <laughs> and I'm good, probably one of them. <laughs> you know, yeah, same, right? You know, and and I feel like probably in in these worlds that we walk in, like there is a lot of people like that, right? And there's a lot of people for whom like they're you know, who have seen some shit, you know, it's not like not a matter of being sheltered at all. Right. But like, you Mm -hmm. know, you still have this kind of fundamental willingness to suspend disbelief or like to have, you know, a tiny bit of faith in, you know, what people might mean or something like that, you know, and like that, that can be just like a really good mindset to go into if you're trying to do stuff that is affecting our reality, you know, in some way or like, or your own experience of it anyway. So. Yeah, totally, dude. I'm thinking also of like this interesting sort of interchange that happens too between the the believer, the the like maybe wild, wide eyed, uh, you know, gullible believer, and the sort of like flim flammer or con man quote that is like creating this magic, but then it, it sort of becomes real and being believed by the listener. So it's there's this really interesting thing that I think can happen there. Again, getting back to like you said earlier, that this thing about sort of that things aren't real until they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, so to me, like, you know, then then you could take that further, like, especially if you're talking about something that you do for an audience that could also be magical or or whatever, right? Mm-hmm you know, if you're thinking about this product versus process thing, like, I don't think that a lot of what I do with the exception of the album we talked about earlier, the, um, I guess I think of it as ecophony, but I don't know if that's correct. Oh, uh, sorry. Ecophony. I don't don't know. I just, I think it runs with cacophony, but I don't know. I've never actually, you know, so anyway, that makes more sense than what I said. Um, But like, you know, is like, that's a, that's a pretty rare, um, uh, you know, kind of exception for me, but I think for the most part, I don't think of a lot of what I do is like sound magic per se, but I do think of it as magical sound in that like it has to do with the state that I'm in when I'm making it versus what I'm trying to do with it, if that makes sense. I'm not trying to do something where like, you know, like the press release is like, you listen to this and you'll get like a, you know, like you'll, you'll get all like the sweetest, like gold coins you'll ever find or something. And, you know, like, you know, make, make promises that like, this will definitely, you know, fix your migraine or like, you know, that sort of thing, you know, but I, but I feel as though that there are a lot of pieces of music that are not advertised that way that are still totally magical um, and it has everything to do with like the sort of state and the openness that the artist has when they're making it. And so then they don't even have to say anything about, you know, esotericism or, you know, like any of the buzzwords that, you know, that that people in occult fields would would recognize and latch on to, you know, but there you, you still know, like, you know, from the moment that you hear them that like what is going on in me as a result to this is magic. And that to me, like, is yeah, I don't know. Like that's that's an important distinction for my musical process, I guess. That yeah, I think that makes sense. So it's not necessarily like always about like you're producing this product for it to be this thing that will do this thing. It's like the actual act of making it is the magic itself and you're sort of encapsulating that within the music. I yes, I think so. And I and I, you know, like this is maybe this is more I don't know. I don't don't burn down my doors, but definitely don't burn down Lux's door if you disagree with this. Um, <laughs> don't burn down anybody's doors. <laughs> no doors. Yeah. Uh, but I it, it has led me to believe that like intent 
and desire is maybe not the currency and magic that we are led to believe that it is, I guess. And that, you know, like, because I feel like if you set an intent, you know, that if you set an intent, like then you have like gradations, like you're, you're either on target or you're far from the target or you're, you know, you're somewhere in between, right? Like you, you have like a degree of closeness based on what you expected would happen. Um, and that can cause you to miss other really magical things, right? Because you're looking for the one thing that you were expecting, right? And, you know, I think that like sometimes the change that we create with these things is, you know, it's lateral sometimes. Like it's not always better or worse or closer or further to the target, but like it's sometimes it's just change, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like to to look at what we do in a way that, yeah, I don't know, that it's like acknowledges all that and like, you know, can make space for, watching for the weird side effects, like, you know, and, you know, theoretically, like a good journaling practice should help you with that, like, regardless of, you know, whether you have like a, you know, like 100% chiseled intent, or whether, you know, your intent is more malleable, or you're just like messing around or doing serious play or whatever, like, but I do think that, yeah, that there is, um, there was a lot, like a lot of the people that I was first learning magic from, like, you know, it was like very much Peter Carroll, 100%, because like this, I don't know, it's 2004, probably. So like, you know, I read the invisibles and then someone gave me a, po- a copy of, uh, uh, <laughs> Null and, you know, and like, it was like, that was it. That was the deep end, you know? And like, and uh, there was a lot of that stuff that was pretty alienating to me. Like, I think there's a lot of, you know, just the language and the tone that Carol uses were, you know, but also like the things that he describes as like every magician, every serious magician should do this. And it's like, I'm not really interested in that. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't want to yeah. be reborn, you know, <laughs> like reborn into like a, you know the tone of it is definitely like different than i think people would write now um yes yeah yeah for sure but not to say there's not like useful information in there obviously but yeah of course i think that this is a comment that a lot of people have made is like okay well yeah this is (laughs) this is cool it's got definitely got a very distinct tone right yeah it i mean but you know what i think that is that the things that have felt the most right to me as far as the magical or mystical stuff that i have done has been the stuff where it it makes me feel like i'm sort of getting closer to like a you know a kind of true path as opposed to just an individual intent and I know that, you know, like we're supposed to make that distinction, like, you know, when they, you know, when Crowley says love is the law, love under will, like we're not, or, you know, um, no, not that one, uh, the other big quote, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, right? You know, and like, you know, how Thelemites are usually very good about being like, you know, it didn't just mean do whatever the fuck you want, right? Like theoretically, right? And yet, yeah. like, you know, like, you know, so we clarify that, right? Like we understand that it's not just about like kind of satisfying your basis instincts all the time and, you know. And yet look at how many Thelemites just like follow Crowley's example directly, you know, rather than like parse the nuance of that stuff. But like, you know, like, uh, unfortunately, I have I have negative stereotypical (laughs) uh, Thelemite um, uh, encounters in my history uh, that I'm sure are biasing all these statements. And I, you know, I know there are some people out there. I just I wanted to point out real quick something that you had mentioned, like you said, like we're supposed like we're told we're supposed to do X, Y and Z. Right. And Mm -hmm. like. You know, I'm just, I've, I've always been suspicious of anybody else telling me how to do my own thing, right? You know, like, sure. people can say, like, yeah, that's that's cool. Like, these techniques, like, they work, you should experiment with them. But, like, you got to find it for yourself, right? Like, you know, we, sh- we should be doing X, Y, and Z. Well, so who's, who says who? Like, who's the fucking authority on this shit? Uh, right. Probably you, right? <laughs> like, I don't know. No, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's that's absolutely true. 
and I think, you know, well, it's a, you know, it's, it's again, that sort of tone of like, you know, what, what occultists are supposed to do. And, you know, probably this was a result of my only hanging out with people. So like from a certain lineage within that sort of field, you know, where it was mostly chaos magicians and telemines and like, you know, didn't really like meet people who were exploring other paths with it until much later. And like, you know, so, so I'm sure that this is, that has biased my experience uh, um, to some degree, you know, but that, being said, I feel like, you know, there is a, for me, the stuff that has resonated the most has been the stuff where it feels like not that I'm satisfying an intent or getting close to, or, you know, like realizing an outcome that I, that I thought that I wanted, but like, I kind of notice it by, you know, by the result, right? Like where, where in the result is like, I feel like I'm able to move through the world more easily, you know, or like with more joy or, or like kind of warmness, I guess, like, and, you know, to, to me, like the, that's where this, that's where the stuff gets really, really real and like really tangible is like the feeling that like, you know, and it could be apophenia, it could be, you know, whatever, like pattern recognition type, you know, processes that humans are really good at, but there have been a lot of moments in my life, um, but like not a ton, but, you know, enough, like really significant ones where it's like, I know that what I did was right because it has like opened a door in my path somewhere, you know? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Having a distinct sense that like something that I've done will pay off down the line in a way that I cannot yet anticipate, I guess. Yeah, totally. And even if we did want to take like a purely materialistic standpoint and say like, oh, it's just apophenia or whatever, like that still indicates that there might've been some like changes made to your cognition. So something's fucking happening, right? Sure. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, so I think for me, you know, like the, when I was first getting into this, like this being a cult, you know, type stuff and, you know, it was like, so I read the invisibles, I read Peter Carroll and then read some Crowley and read like, you know, Alan Moore comics and things like that. Um, one of the things that like really like set off a huge connection for me was this book, The Neverending Story, which was of course adapted into a movie <laughs> that, you know, lots of <laughs> folks probably know and it hasn't aged particularly well, but it's very nostalgic for, you know, in eighties and nineties kids, but, um, Oh gosh. Yeah. It hasn't aged very well. Not, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm remembering now. It made me really sad to discover that, but, but the book uh, is timeless. I would say like, I've read it, you know, I've read it probably like every year from the ages of six to 21 or something like that. And I've come back to it every couple of years since then. And like around the time that I read it, you know, soon after I found Crowley and found magic and found chaos stuff, like, you know, there, there's a, a medallion that a character gets, you know, and on the back of which it, it says, do what you wish. And that's like, you know, that's how it's translated into English. The book was originally written in Germany, but of course it's like, uh, you know, in German, it's, it's like a word that is much more like will, like, you know, do, do what you will. And that feels like much more like, you know, kind of like Crowleyan, like Thelemic kind of like, you know, approach to things, because of course it's not just about the kid doing what he wants because he does that and things go really badly for him, but it's about like, you know, sort of him realizing what his path is and like, mm -hmm. you know, sort of what his destiny is. And, you know, of course, when you talk about like paths and stuff like that, you know, you get into like kind of tricky questions of free will. And, you know, I think that like, that is probably the biggest American contribution to magic is just like inserting this, like, you know, individualist, you know, kind of cowboy notion into everything a little bit, um, maybe more <laughs> than it was for, for English folks. And, you know, and who knows, but I don't know, that's, that's a guess, but. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I don't know. 
it's, I don't know. It, I, I don't know if I stand by that, but I, I'm just shooting. <laughs> no, interesting to consider though. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, for me like that, you know, that was like super like, like, holy crap. Like, you know, I wonder if this guy was a thelemite, uh, thelemite you know, like I, you know, it, like it resonated that re- that time rereading the book, like after getting into occult stuff and like, you know, kind of starting to do some pathworking type things, you know, some shadow work type things and like just very, very, very basic stuff. You know, that like that seemed to be encapsulating all of that stuff. Like and of course, because it's a young adult novel, it's like, you know, the themes are very like they're very transparent. You know, it's like it's not buried in the text there, but mm-hmm. there's still, you know, some good layers to it, too. So. Yeah. And so like, you know, to me, like I would watch a lot of people like, you know, who I was doing stuff with and like, you know, who would like declare these really bold, intense and like, you know, today we're going to do this. You're like, today I'm going to do this. And and, you know, and it's going to have this effect. And like, you know, just speaking like in the very kind of rational scientific way about magic, which is, I think, you know, generally a pretty good development. I don't know if it's like my favorite thing, but I, you know, I think it's probably a good thing for the the practice as a whole. I think it's good but it's not always accurate yeah right yeah. <laughs> I don't that's, know. that's definitely fair you know but like seeing that and like you know seeing like you know how like kind of betting with myself like you know are you gonna fail like you know or like how close are you gonna get to this intent of yours and like you know especially when talking with like complete and like you know kind of like boneheaded certainty that like you know what i'm doing is going to have this result and i know it you know and like you know, just me kind of like shrugging and laughing, like, okay, yeah, I guess, you know, like, that'd be great. I, you know, let me know. how. Sure. Goes, you know? Let's see. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but to me, like, you know, that's, that's like the kind of like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's like people who like, you know, complain to their, their, their server, like, you know, or you know, like, like people who, people who decide to like, you know, make the people that are helping them's lives hell. Like, you know, it's that, that kind of attitude to me in a way, except like you're doing it with like the spirit ecology and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, you know, you help me, you help me like this. Yeah. Give me this. Yeah. Yeah. Get out there and like waving your fist. Yeah. There's different ways to get the things that you want, I think. Right. Like there's this, this idea of like, uh, imposing one's will on the world which Mm -hmm. that's cool man like whatever like uh, there's also like the thing about like you know letting the stuff that you want come to you maybe there's like a a cool combination of those things that's probably really what the the most effective way to be would would go you know to go would be but like Mm -hmm. i don't know it's a i do think that one of the pitfalls perhaps or cul-de-sacs maybe um on the magical path can be this idea of like this really like strictly linearly causal idea of how magic functions like you do this and then this happens like because that's not like yeah like shit will happen but it's not gonna necessarily be the way that you think it will like right i, I don't know the, the whole like the way of constructing like those kinds of um scenarios and that whole like thought process seems to be limiting too in in that it like closes off a lot of possibilities right like you want to have as many possibilities as possible to get the highest probability for your results to manifest so i I don't know yeah and you know so i guess like for me like and you know to tying this all back to the sort of gullibility and passiveness and all that stuff is that like you know I, I like the idea of cultivating readiness rather than like, you know, doing a bunch of offensives, you know, like I like the idea that you are ready for the magical things that are coming into your life 
and that means ready to identify them, you know, whether they're manifesting as like people that, you know, you need to know in this moment or like, you know, like someone who you're going to do like great work with or, you know, for a couple of years or something like that, you know, or like, you know, it's just like you finding like the the coin that you need to like buy the, you know, the, the thing that you have been missing or something like, you know, like just like whatever, however that manifests, like I think that it is very, it is, I don't know, I, I feel like for me it is, it is um, the biggest part of my work as as a magician practitioner whatever like and and as a musician to some degree is like just being able to catch the things that are good when they happen rather than seeking out for a bunch of different things and yeah and you know i recognize that's a passive approach and like that's not for everybody but i feel like it has made a pretty big difference for me so yeah no i think that's dope and i think that that can be very very effective like i've um, know from experience that can be hugely effective but it requires um, a person being willing to like give up a little bit of like their feeling of control which can yep. be a scary thing like it requires a little bit of vulnerability yes definitely um, which can be actually very powerful <laughs> so yeah <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of different ways to um, accomplish a goal right and yeah. I think that uh, yeah being willing to like explore um, I mean, gosh, I think Sun Tzu would say like attack from multiple angles if possible, right? <laughs> like... <Sure>. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what's up? It's me, Luxa from the future. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I know I really enjoyed my conversation with Adam. It means a lot to me to be able to, you know, have these kinds of talks with people. It can be difficult to find folks that one relates with or has like, you know, philosophical compatibility or whatever. Like, so doing this show that has allowed me to do that a lot and it wouldn't be possible without you listeners. So it really means a lot to me that you all are listening. And I just want to express my gratitude for that. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. We're going to be getting into some really cool topics here coming up, um, including this sort of idea of like product versus process. There's all kinds of, you know, really interesting things that Adam has to say. And like, you know, just going back and like editing this episode was really cool just because it gave me the chance to like, you know, rethink a lot of that stuff and cover that ground again, which is always an interesting thing too about doing this. Um, as has been requested <laughs> at the end of the episode, I will wax philosophic a little bit more um, and talk about this idea of like, you know, art and magic and, and stuff like that. And we'll also hear more mycology themed music from Adam. In the meantime, though, here is another track by Adam called Forced Dispersed from the album Nahadith. Hopefully I said that right. Not sure. Anyway, good stuff. You can check out all of Adam's stuff at adammatluck.bandcamp.com.
Alright, fuck yeah. Let's get back into that interview. Well, so yeah, okay, so I think another another good like, you know, pos- and, and another way to connect it to me, um, or for me to music, I guess, is like, this idea of kind of like, sometimes you have to do the thing to find out why you're doing the thing. And like, you know, for me in music, that was like doing scales. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I hate, when I was a kid, I hated doing that stuff. You know, like basic rudiments, things that are like, you know, every instrumentalist should be doing every day, right? Theoretically, right? You know, to warm your fingers up, to engage your brain, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like, but, you know, like I had to do those for like over 10 years before I finally figured out like why it was so important for me to be doing those, you know? Mm. And like, I think that there are some aspects of magical practice where like, you know, if you're expecting a big result and you don't get it, then you may just give up. Right. But like, sometimes you, you have to like be doing the things every day and then like, and then you discover why, you know, like I know why I'm doing this now, you know, like I understand what the function is of this thing. I think like similarly, like, you know, I'm a bit of a pack rat. And, you know, when I like in the moments in my life when I've been like more seriously practicing magic than others, like it's always been like, I know why I kept this thing. Like, why did I keep this weird letter from this yes, person? That's like, happened it was to for me this so purpose, many times. You know? Yeah. So like, you know, and that's like kind of gratifying. I mean, you know, it's, it's not great for personal uh, cleanliness all the time, but, um, you know, but it's, it's, uh, I feel like it's very satisfying. So. But yeah, I, I don't look, I don't know your life. I don't know what your house looks like. <laughs> A little bit. I mean, whatever. It's also good not to be wasteful. There's sure. a balancing act, like so many other things to be done. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so, and and I think like, you know, in, in even, you know, like in, in music, a lot of the things that I do, you know, are kind of related to improvisation. I think for a long time, I had like a real distinction in my head between like composition and improvisation, right? So like composition is where you come up with the ideas. And like you try and write them out on paper and you, you know, you have like your goal and then you do your best to hit the goal, right? And improvisation is like you engage all parts of your brain and your body in order to like, you know, kind of make sounds in the moment and you do it sometimes with other people. Sometimes you just do it on your own and like, you don't always like find the thing, the reason why you were doing it. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes you do a whole session and it's like, well, none of that was very good, but I'm glad I did it, you know? And like, sometimes you do that whole session and like from the first minute, it's like, you know, it's immediately, everything's on fire. It's like perfect. You know, it's like, hits exactly what I wanted to feel emotionally while I was doing it. It, you know, it sounds the way I wanted it to sound that sort of thing. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it doesn't happen until like somewhere in the middle, you know, but like if I had stopped because I didn't know what the intent was when I sat down to do it, then those things never would have happened. And like, boom, there's like, you know, three quarters of my discography. So, you know, I feel like that for me, like just, just the doing of things in a way, you know, again, is like, is a, is a way to kind of like really find your, you know, find your intent in a way, you know, and you can, you can really like kind of discover a lot of things in that way by starting something without an intent, right? Then you discover it as you go. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about the stuff that you've done with the Green Mushroom Project, because I really appreciate the contributions that you've made and like the fact that you are here with us and everything and um, yeah, everything. So if you don't mind, could we talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I just want to say vice versa, you know, it's like, um, yeah, I'm very honored to be a part of such a rad group of people doing such awesome stuff. So yeah. Yeah, dude, they they really are super dope. Shout out to everybody listening that's been participating, no matter what that looks like for you and in your individual practice. Fuck yeah. Um, yeah, well, I guess, 
Yeah, I guess. Well, so I found your show a couple months after you started doing it, I guess, like probably February of this year, maybe. And, you know, and I don't remember exactly. I think, you know, I remember like getting to the episode about the green mushroom at some time after it had had aired, you know, or you had you had uploaded it. So so I think you had already kind of been doing it for a little while and then, you know, eventually um, you know, heard about, uh, as I sort of caught more, caught up more on episodes, I heard about the, the faith blind council discord and like, you know, sort of found my way there and, you know, in those fungal Friday chats, like, I think that was like probably my first, you know, just, just kind of like finding, finding the, finding the server and, and joining in that way. But, you know, I'm, I'm also very interested in mycology. That is probably what brought me into larger climate kind of awareness and work in general. Um, so, you know, anything that combines mycology and magic is, you know, naturally going to really push my buttons. So, um, so I, you know, I was like, <laughs> you know, I like, but I didn't skip ahead. I made a point of like, I'm going to listen to these episodes in order. I'm not going to like, just jump to the gratifying thing, you know, that happens in episode 10 or whatever, you know, so. Because so I you waited. did all those scales when you were a kid. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. No, I don't know. Maybe that's just obsession, but you know, I I feel like I do that with podcasts sometimes, and okay, cool. have to start from episode one. So, so <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, that was that was how I found it, and you know, and of course, like since then, I mean, you know, I've been involved in probably like two or three of the group workings that um, that the council has done, and and you know, I think been kind of exploring a little bit of the, you know, the astral space, the mushroom itself, um, you know, and some of the trance work that I've been doing. And yeah, I mean, I think, excuse me, really just like enjoying all of the, the, just like the putting of heads together that happens as a result of like the folks that are, that are connected there, you know, I think is like, then that is, you know, super gratifying. It's like super stimulating. I, you know, I kind of often like will sign off of those chats, like, you know, and kind of be awake for a little bit longer, even though they're, way past my bedtime and like, <laughs> yes. you know just because it's you know like it's very exciting stuff like you know we get in we sometimes get into these tacks and it's like you know yeah this yeah is, sometimes we talk about dicks and food but a lot of times we talk <laughs> about really interesting not that dicks and food aren't interesting but other interesting things, right, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, no it's i mean it's all and it's the balance i think probably you know if it was <laughs> it was all super interesting stuff then i would be like you know really desperate for the dicks and food so um yeah so <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> no, fuck yeah. I yeah, I think it's um I'm uh astounded at how like well it's gone and how like cool the people that have come to it have been and and everything. It's sort of like I I sort of feel like I'm in like perpetual shock over yeah all of it. So, I don't know. Well, <laughs> but okay. in a good way. Yeah, so I mean, I think if if I had to elaborate a little bit more, right? You know, because as a result of, you know, the pandemic and everything, I've spent a lot of time in the last 2 years on social media more even than my already staggeringly high amounts, you know, prior to that. So, um, so and what that does to me generally is like lower my expectations for humanity and like make me less patient and less charitable and like, you know, just like more easy. It makes it easier for me to write people off or like, you know, just like size them up really quickly and not understand what they mean. Or, you know, these are social media habits. I think that probably everybody has mm -hmm. just like you make your snap judgments, you know, you do stuff for clout, you get the dopamine flood, whatever, like. So no value judgments. I mean, although I'm kind of leaning much more negatively. Yeah, th these platforms are like set up to create this situation. I feel like, and, right. and maybe maybe not intentionally, but the, the way that they're set up results in this. Like, it just has to. So yeah, right. Yeah, 
And, you know, and I think like, you know, to like 100% to the credit of the, the people that, you know, that are working on this project is that like, you know, this has been like the single most positive, like social media experience probably that I've ever had. And also it's given me the opportunity to kind of like work on some other things that other social media has done to me behaviorally in terms of like the snap judgments and the writing people off. Like, you know, I think that one of the the greatest gifts that you can have when you know people over a long period of time, longer than say, like it takes to read their five most recent tweets or something like that, you know, is the fact that you get to change your mind about them. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, you're, we're coming at it from, you know, with these kind of ground rules and this sort of like basic intent that is like, you know, that is very positive and I think is very supportive and that helps too. Right. Because then it means like, you know, I listen to something that somebody says, and even if I don't hundred percent, like, you know, know what they meant by it, or if like, you know, something about it maybe kind of rubs me the wrong way, like I can give them the benefit of the doubt and then like, you know, wait to clarify a little bit, you know, and like, learn that there's probably more than what I just sized up, you know, from like my gut instinct from, you know, how, what they said hit me, you know, and like, that's a great thing. You know, I mean, I feel like that is a, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's something that, you know, I don't want to be like conversations of dying art and all that stuff, but you know, in, in some sense, like it, you know, that our interactions have changed so much um that like i think authentic communication is sort of a dying art maybe that's what people mean when they say conversation but like authentic communication i don't know yeah maybe gods i don't know if that was ever actually a thing like in information theory like there's always a certain amount of like noise that takes place with any (laughs) transfer of information so communication is always going to be a nightmare but like (laughs) i don't know yeah well yeah. So I'm, yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, and of course, like when you're talking, yeah, like noise, I don't know, I guess I think of like signal to noise kind of ratio type stuff. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're like, if the signal's really clean, right. You have no noise. Right. But like, you know, there is no such thing as a clean signal when you're talking about people communicating what their brains are thinking and what their hearts are feeling through this like tenuous medium of language. Like, you know, like, yeah, dude. so I don't know. So, you know, I feel like, it is very easy. Like we're in a prime position to like write that kind of stuff off and, you know, just like totally, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, and totally misunderstand people. And like, you know, I think that one of the things that I started noticing, you know, was that like how much it, not only like that it rubbed me the wrong way, like when I would get dragged into a fight on Facebook or like in somebody's comments or like, you know, do the thing on Twitter where like everybody gets mad about one thing for a day or something like that, you know, like those are things that, you know, I think they're a little bit hit or miss because like you get the sort of group aspect of them. And like, that is pretty exciting, especially like if you're isolated and like, you know, that's a, like, that's, that's a pretty empowering feeling, but then also like, it is totally manipulative and like, like, wait, why am I mad about this thing that I didn't care about until I saw that it was trending, you know? Who's the one giving me this message and what do they want? Right. Yeah. I don't totally. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so like, you know, and of course you can like follow that rabbit hole all the way down and then just like never talk to anyone ever again, you know, or, (laughs) hopefully like have a more moderate, you know, kind of like detox from it or something. And, you know, and just like kind of start to like do the metacognition thing. Right. You know, where it's just like, huh, I really don't like the way that I think when I am reliant on these platforms or like when I, Mm. you know, like when I am typing in my phone password in my sleep or something like that, you know, or like, you know, that kind of thing. 
you know, it's like, it's weird, weird stuff like that, but yeah. So, so anyway, as all that is to say that, you know, with the, with the folks on the green mushroom council, like, you know, it has been a real opportunity to practice like long-term communication with people who I had never met before, you know, with like one exception, there's like, you know, I've known like maybe two people that have come across that server, you know, since, since I joined earlier this year. Right. Um, but otherwise it's been, you know, folks I've never known. And so it's like, you know, you have to do the, the process of a getting to know people and then like be sort of learning to understand what your gut tells you about them. Right. And like, recognizing that sometimes the gut is wrong about these things that like sometimes your gut is conditioned a certain way because of experiences in your life. Right. Or like, because, you know, like I, like I may be walking on eggshells expecting that, you know, like, I don't know, I spent probably like five years of my life, like kind of walking around expecting that, you know, everything that someone said was like possibly a racist comment. Right. And like, probably like 60% of it was. And, you know, but like then probably a, a much smaller percentage of that was like, you know, more like it was just like inherited terminology, like, you know, sort of like words that people used in previous generations that, you know, that like were have offensive etymologies. Right. But like nobody thought about that in the time. It's just like, it, you know, like uh, and, you know, and like trying to like just like learn to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. Right. And like, you know, learning where your lines are, obviously, and like what you need to do in order to not like live a life that, you know, where you are like always recovering or like always like, I don't know, kind of like just like, you know, kind of like sort of trying to find your balance again, I guess. But then at the same time, like, you know, how do you how do you then extend the same sort of like charitability to other people that you're interacting with. And like, you know, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's a hard puzzle, but um, yeah, all that, all that is to say that the uh, green mushroom process project has been a really good um, practice <laughs> set of practices for that among other things. So, you know. no, fuck yeah, dude. And yeah, what you're saying makes some sense to me, like in terms of, um, I don't know, confusion about like, I don't know, the cognition and stuff, like, obviously don't, um, you know, get exactly where you're coming from. But I think that I have, like, maybe a few like adjacent ideas about, like, you know, well, are you, like, talking to me this way because I'm female? Or mm-hmm. is it, like, I, I don't know. Sure, and yeah. A lot of times it's not, like, intentional, right? Like, I, I don't know, there's this idea of, like, you know, don't blame the person, blame the pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Or blame the system, right, too. And so, like, yeah, having that kind of, like, compassion and, like, that sort of, like, broader understanding, I think, can really save oneself some pain you know right. it helps you take it less uh personally at least that that's been my experience that like that that, that doesn't make it like cool or okay <laughs> this right. is mostly just about protecting one's own psychological well-being oh yeah but, absolutely um, right yeah. and you know i think like probably like you know people from a you know like american christian tradition might say like you know sort of like hate the sin love the sinner that sort of thing and i you know i don't know if i buy that completely but i also see like the purpose that it serves right in terms of sure mitigating in, in their paradigm right fine yeah sure. that's cool <laughs> you know like, yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey there, it's Luxa from the future once more. I just wanted to duck in to do a bit of table setting. We're about to talk about the Saprotroph Servitor Network, which is something that folks from the Green Mushroom Project set up 
for practitioners who are wanting to create or summon, depending on one's outlook, magical agents. If you would like to obtain a Sapratrophe to work with, there are instructions about how to do that available in the show notes. And if you do decide to do this, uh, we'd love to hear about your experiences working with it. You're about to hear a little bit about how mine has helped me with some of the stuff I, you know, created it for related to physical and psychological health. Um, and so thank you, Mirans. Anyway, I've noticed that the idea of like summoning or creating magical helpers or agents or whatever seems to be something that folks struggle with or maybe like uncomfortable about. So we were hoping that the Sapertrophes could be a way of making this kind of stuff like more accessible to newcomers too. The Sapertrophes are a magical species, meaning that they have a certain platform or collection of attributes upon which they are built. But as individual members of that species, they can be customized to fit the needs of the person working with them. It's been a really interesting experiment so far. Um, and speaking of sound and magic, you know, as sort of is the theme of this episode, part of how we brought this part of the project to life involved a collaborative sound sigil, which participants from the Green Mushroom Project contributed to um, with like statements of intent. And there is a link to that track in the instructions about obtaining a sapertrophe. Okay, so hopefully all of that will serve to alleviate some confusion rather than adding to it. Uh, regardless, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get back to that dope conversation with Adam, also known as an historic. of like what we were talking about just now sort of like um hovers around the idea of like why we originally created the Sapertrophe network mm -hmm. and i think that like what you came to us like because you were the one that sort of like w asked like could we do something that would accomplish these kinds of like functions mm -hmm. and yeah and i thought that that i just thought that was really cool it was a really interesting opportunity at least for me from like a sort of problem solving standpoint of like well how can uh this be accomplished i talked to a lot of different people um shout out to tyler firth who definitely uh gave me some good ideas about this mm -hmm. and um so yeah i just I, I wanted to thank you for like bringing that into our sort of like realm of uh awareness about about this could this could be something that we could do because i've my saprotroph that i've created i've gotten tremendous benefit from it i've stopped vaping i have you know wow. I, I adjusted my diet i'm exercising much more i'm like much health it's it's doing like what it to do and I, i'm doing much better because of it so you are indirectly to thank for that so thank you <laughs> wow, awesome oh that's cool yeah I, I i mean that's you know that sort of thing like you know when you talk about it as like you know like even just from like a, a problem solving perspective right like you know, like ultimately, like that's one of the things that makes me most grateful to have any kind of practice at all is that it, it makes me most grateful to have any kind of practice at all. I don't know if still the difference between practice and praxis sometimes, but um, <laughs> oops. Uh, nevertheless, <laughs> it's, you know, is that it's like a, it's a set of another set of tools that you can use to solve 
problems that like really requires you to reach outside of your conditioned responses in a lot of ways. And those conditioned responses, you know, like we have them for so many reasons, for so many levels of severity, for so many, you know, like there's so many things that are sort of built in to us as a result of, you know, of trauma or of like, you know, of like our histories or, you know, things like that. And, and it can be so hard to get around them because they can be all we know for such a long time. Um, and then, so, yeah, like when you're trying to live in, and in a way that is more full and like, has a, you know, like a, I don't know, like a more loving and more freeing in a way, like, you know, it, it takes a lot of reaching outside of yourself to do that because it is so easy to just protect the bottom line, which is yourself and yourself in stasis, because that is the experience of yourself that you're aware of. Right. And, you know, I think like, ultimately this is where, like having this, this musical practice has been super beneficial for me as a person, you know, like undiagnosed, but self-diagnosed like with depression and probably a handful of other things too, is like having this experience of something else over time that is not just myself, you know? Mm. So having a relationship to an instrument or to uh, a piece of music that I've tried to play or a piece of music that I've been listening to for decades or something like that, you know? And like having those as ways of just like marking the passage of time in a way that's just not completely in my own head, I guess. Yeah. yeah, fuck yeah, dude. It can sort of be a thread that like ties everything together because it runs through everything. Yeah, and like, and not always directly, right? Sometimes it's just like, you know, like, oh, I finally learned how to do this scale, like on the, you know, the weekend that like my cousin graduated or something like that, you know, and like that was the important <laughs> story that weekend. But I still also remember that like, you know, like this is the scale I, I associate with that or something like that. Yeah, fuck yeah, dude. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me this evening. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I didn't ask about? Um, yeah, well, so I guess like just kind of tying in a little bit, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of the things that is that has interested me a lot is this idea of hyper sigils. And one of the projects that that I have done over the last 10 years was start a, a tape label that immediately went belly up um, called hyper sigil tapes. And the idea was like really born out of like, just like a total like clerical fuck up where like I ordered a bunch of blank tapes and I ended up like not looking over the order very quickly or like very thoroughly. And then, you know, when I got there, I, uh, when it got there, I got like a bunch of tapes that were all different lengths. So I couldn't use them for, you know, it was like a, like a bargain thing or something like that. So okay. I couldn't use them for the album that I wanted <laughs> okay. to use. Um, okay. I was like, you know, I'm going to make 20 tapes of this. I'm going to sell it, you know, like that, this sort of thing. And like, you know, in, in dungeon synth cassettes are still a common thing. So, you know, that's, that's, I the, love it. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of tape I mean, just in case you know, okay. there's probably people listening that have never fucking seen one of those things. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. You're totally right. I love it. I'll put a picture in the show notes in it's, case anybody's confused <laughs> with the pencil too. Right. Just, uh, yeah. um, yeah. So, so yeah. And so I had, you know, all like probably like 30 tapes of all different lengths and I couldn't use them for what I had originally intended them, you know, and like I had, you know, what probably medically would be described as like a brief kind of like manic episode or something where I stayed up until three o'clock in the morning, just like brainstorming this idea. A creative outburst, you mean? Like, sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> But it was definitely like a, you know, like neurons firing on all cylinders kind of moment uh, where it's like, I know what I need to do with these tapes. 
And what it is, is to just like experiment with them, but in a way that, you know, is going to be more formal where like, what I'm going to do is just like put this in the recorder and like play until the side runs out. And during the course of this, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to decide like, this is going to be this style that I've never done before. This is going to be something that I've always wanted to do, but I've never done like duo soup. Excuse me, um, a super weird tape, like, you know, with only like the head of a recorder, like, you know, and like, like a, you know, like the wooden, wooden flute kind of thing. Right. Um, and, you know, just like going to just going to like do the experiments that I never had the chance to do because like a, I'm not sure if they're fully formed ideas, B, you know, recording them any other way would be a pain in the ass. Like, you know, so like, here's the spontaneity of just like putting a thing in the, in the machine, hitting record and just going, you know, and like after I released, uh, like I released two tapes that were like, one was my album, one was someone else's. And then like that project just like never completed, but it sort of evolved into other things that I did where like the work that I did like of recording, you know, over the course of this week, you know, where I filled probably 20 out of those 27 tapes, I guess, you know, was all different styles of stuff and like stuff that I had never done before, like using instruments I'd never really like played before, that kind of thing. And, and it was just like this kind of like casting of the net. And I feel like I've been slowly drawing that net in for the last five years or so, where like the, the subject of those experiments, even though most of them are really bad and should never be released, like, you know, really kind of like incubated a lot of stuff where like, now I have a black metal project. Now I have a project that's a little jazzier, right? Where like, I never would have felt comfortable doing that before, but like I did the initial recording of it and that sort of like opened the door to that style or that aesthetic. And then, you know, I was able to kind of follow up and sort of come back to that seat a little bit later. Um, I fucking love that, dude. That's very cool. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was like, you know, very much it was just sort of like becoming the type of person who does black metal, right? You know, I always listen to By that doing stuff. the black metal. Right. Yeah. But yeah, but, it, you know, b- before that, it was like, well, I don't play guitar. I don't really know how to scream. You know, I don't, like, you know, why would I do that? Like, I'm not the type of person who does that. Right. And that was it. It was the fixed state of like, mm-hmm. you know, I am a person who does not record black metal. And yeah, it's like, this but what is the story was? that you're telling yourself. Right. Yeah. So then, yeah. What do I tell? What if I, if I have this sort of formalized process where it's like, well, I've got a bunch of these tapes that I don't want to waste the money on. So I'm going to use them as a way to start telling myself these stories. And, you know, several of them have sort of like come to fruition in other ways where, you know, just like, you know, again, like not releasing that original stuff that I recorded, but like all that experimentation sort of led into, you know, kind of trying lots of styles that I'd never done before, you know, releasing more of my own music more regularly, like, you know, kind of just like taking more of a driver's seat kind of role, you know, where where it had been like much more passive for me before and like where my release schedule and like my ability to sort of produce music was just much slower yeah you know yeah before doing that project like i you know probably had released maybe 10 albums since my first album i released in 2009 and then like since then it's probably been like close to 60 and you know some of them are even good so i would say yeah i know you're like insanely prolific i was gonna mention that like i'm curious about like how do you keep up your product your productivity so well Um, just, well, for a long time, it was really just like not saying no to the muse or, you know, to the spark. Like whenever I felt it, like I would follow it until I either like couldn't keep my eyes open or just being at the mercy of one's creative drives. Okay. (laughs) 
and <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> and that worked, you know, for a while. And, you know, like I uh, am in my mid thirties now, so that's not as possible. Just, you know, like I really like do feel it when I like stay up way too late and like, you know, it's like kind of worse than a hangover almost. So, um, you know, so for me, like I, you know, I just, I can't do that as much anymore, but yeah, I think it was like, that was a really good sort of like sort of testing ground for a bunch of things that I'd never managed to get done prior to all that, you know? And yeah. And I think like, you know, then having, having them all be kind of connected to stories, I think that has like really helped to motivate me too, because it makes me want to kind of find out what's happening next. You know, so a lot of the projects, some of them have like distinct narratives where like I've, you know, written short stories that go with them, or I have short stories that I haven't published that are sort of connected to the, um, to the music or the album or something like that, you know, but like a lot of it is that like, you know, with each project and, you know, with a lot of distinct projects, it's like each one I, f- I like to feel has kind of a different mood or a different place that I can access when I feel like I'm in doing that project. And the flip side of that, of course, is that like, you know, it's much easier for, at least for me, for a musical project is much easier to start one than it is to do a follow-up. So there's a lot of things that I've only done one release for, and then, you know, like I recorded that in like two days or recorded it in a week. And then like, you know, it took me two or three years to come up with the next one because like it took me that long to find that place again. And, you know, there have been a number of times when, you know, even since this sort of like original kind of hyper sigil experiment where I've set out and been like, you know, I have a distinct goal of what I'm going to do with this recording session. And it turns out totally in completely in the other corner of the field. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, this is like. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, it's happened to me a number. And, and that's, you know, kind of where the intent thing kind of hits for me, right? Is that like how many times I've set out with a super distinct intention and I completely missed the mark and I'm super thrilled with what I came up with when I missed the mark. You know? Yeah, fuck yeah. Like, you know, and I still don't know what it would sound like if I accomplished that goal, but that's okay because it sparks something. Yeah, no, totally. A lot of times these things do have a like sort of life and sentience of their own and you just sort of have to like work with them. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, and I think you, you do notice it. I have noticed it when I have ignored that, when I've like, you know, tried to sort of rationalize my way through a process and be like, all right, well, this album is going to be, even though it is very clearly shaping up to be something else, I still want to try and make it the thing that I originally set out to make. And, you know, if I try and force the, you know, round hole square peg, like, you know, it, like it doesn't work, you know, just like. You end up with the camel, which is the, co- the, the horse that a committee made, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never heard that one. That's good. Uh, yeah. Spitting horse with committee. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, in mythology, like I, I, it's like, I remember so taking it back to the never ending story, like there's this, this like very great and terrible moment where like, you know, the, the young hero, like he has this magical sword that he doesn't have to fight with. Right. It like, it just leaps from its sheath and like does what it needs to do whenever it, whenever it needs to be called. But then like the flip side is that he can't draw it on his own. Like, and if he draws it against the sword's will, it's like the, you know, like, you know, it's, he's warned, like never, never do this sort of thing. And then like some point in the book, he finally does it. And like, you know, he strikes his friend down or something like that. And it's like the way that it describes the town, the sound is like this terrible screaming noise. Like, you know, it really does feel like, you know, we're witnessing like, 
you know, this, this terrible repercussion of this, you know, this protagonist sort of like violating the sentience and like the, you know, the will of this object by drawing it against, you know, against its own desire. And, you know, it's described as like a rusty, like kind of creaking noise. It's like, a, you know, really awful sound. And like, you know, that, that has always stuck with me as like, you know, sometimes you just really can't force shit like that, you know, and like, especially creatively. So I actually had an interesting experience like this with one of the sound magic pieces that I produced and I wanted to share it on one of the episodes and I got this like feeling that it like didn't want to be shared in Mm -hmm. that context, but I didn't care. I was like, oh, well, I was planning to do this. I already have it written on my like list of things that are going to be in this blah, blah, blah. Right. I had already decided it would be in there, but like I got this feeling that it like didn't want to be there and like, so I was, I was doing the final production. Like I kept getting all of these like errors, like, and the hmm. track itself ended up getting like corrupted and there was all this like static in it. And I don't, I use audacity, which is a free platform that has lots of bugs. It's fine. Hmm. But, but I don't, it was just interesting. That hasn't happened before. And like, it hasn't happened since. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just this really interesting experience of like, of like you said, like literally going against this thing, my feeling about this thing and then having this horrible sound result of it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, that's yeah. Very ab- absolutely. Like, yeah. Sometimes you do get it literally like as like the sort of ghost in the machine type thing of like, you know, and I can't tell you how many. Yeah. Times, it was like, like fuck like, no. It's all right. You know, <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that is, that is what you wanted, but that's not what you're getting. So yeah. Yeah. And like, and those are, you know, those are like, as a creative person, like those can be some real moments of desperation where it's like, but what do I do now? You know, like, you know, like, do I restart the computer? Do I reinstall the software? Do I, you know, like how far, like, am I going to struggle in order to get this done? Because I feel like it needs to be done. And, and moreover, I wanted it to be done. Right. And like, we're so used to, (laughs) you know, like satisfying our, our wants in those ways sometimes that like, you know, when, when it feels like it's about something that's really important to us, that it's like really hard to just like, Oh, maybe I should sleep on this or maybe I should not do what I was planning with it. You know, it was quite frustrating, but I think a valuable lesson. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So is there anything that you want to ask me? Well, I guess, you know, since we've talked a little shop, I mean, do you consider yourself a musician or do you consider yourself a producer or like kind of what with with regards to the, the music and the sound magic stuff that you're creating? Like, how do, how do you see yourself? Honestly, dude, I consider myself a magician. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing, like at all. <laughs> like, um, I don't really have like, I played when I was younger. I played violin, a little bit of sax and like a little bit of you know, we were trained on like the recorder and the lyre mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. But like, I wasn't like, I never really like had any music theory, although I'm very interested in, in learning some mm-hmm. or anything like that. So like, I sort of like think about the stuff that I make as being like sound collages. Like, okay, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, I'm really not sure what the correct term is. But, um, you know, I, I maybe uh, recording artist since a lot of it's stuff that i record i really don't know sure yeah i mean it's i think like that that is super interesting to me because i think like you know if if like i showed you know one of your sound magic tracks to like somebody who didn't have any occult vocabulary at all but like was you know like a musician friend or something like that you know they might say like oh you know who's this producer or something like that probably that would be the term they would use you know, because like what that often means is like the person who creates the music, but doesn't necessarily like play 
instruments, right? Or, you know, like, yeah, they, they yeah move I don't everything play around, instruments. You know. <laughs> I'm not that talented. <laughs> right. But like, you have an idea of like, what you want it to sound like, right? And, you know, or some sort life, of sort like, of. I feel like I, like, I, I, the way that I do it is that I like, I search for these, like, samples a lot of times like i'll search using like keywords that have come up in like meditations and stuff and like i'll kind of get like a little pool of these things going that like sort of feel like they want to be together sure and then i'll just sort of like start arranging them in the like audacity project and like i don't know just sort of like feeling how they like want to fit together it's like a really intuitive process sure yeah i mean i think oh you know so i think that that there's one aspect where you're dealing with computer related music stuff, you know, production, you know, audio software, like, you know, live, live processing type stuff where like, it's, it's impossible for there not to be some intuitive element of it, right? Like you can read the 600 page manual all you want, and there's still going to be things that happen that you can't predict, you know? And like, for me, when I was first starting to do this stuff, I just like kind of didn't bother reading the manual at all. I was just like, well, I'm using a Mac, but I'll be able to figure it out. And boy, were those famous last words. Wait, should I read the manual? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what you may find (laughs) is that like, there is something that you've been doing like way harder of a way that than it needs to be done right oh that's probably way true and that like, sounds like me just for like physical workflow stuff that can be useful but i also like you know i think it's super cool that you've tried to figure stuff out first because i think then you learn other things from that right like when you learn quote unquote how it's supposed to be done or like how it was intended to be used like you know whatever like computer software designer doesn't know me whatever yeah. but like you know like if you, if you get closer to like how the the workflow was envisioned right then like you know comparing that to the fixes you've come up with or like the solutions that you've come up with can be super informative i, th- I think um, yeah that's a great point yeah there, there's probably a lot of um expediency that i might be missing out on yeah, and and maybe you find that those aren't useful, right? Because like part yeah. of the process is doing it slowly, and that's okay sure. too. You know, I don't know. and yeah, and I, I just for me personally, like I've found that a lot of times I do have to come up with my own ways of doing things. Like a lot of times, like the way that things are taught to me, like doesn't make sense, but I can see a different way that does make sense, or like sure. I don't know. This has been a. a thing for me throughout my life so I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm not like diagnosed or anything but definitely something's uh, a little different so yeah. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah I mean you know I think and yeah I, I think that's absolutely like you know again any tool that you use if you have a personal way of using it like you know an instrument is a tool too right and like theoretically there is a right and a wrong way to play it but really most of those things, like, you know, from a music teacher's perspective, it's about like avoiding injury. Like, how do you do it in a way that you can get as much control as you can possibly have over the instrument while not injuring yourself, while making it so that mm. you can keep doing it for the whole rest of your life? And, you know, like if you once if once you get those two factors out of your like, you know, taken care of, like there's really like the possibilities are infinite. Um, but traditions and pedagogy and like, you know, styles of music, like the classical sort of like way of teaching, you know, has really cut off a lot of those possibilities, closed a lot of doors. And I think they're starting to reopen now because, you know, like pedagogy is like what, a hundred years old now. And like people are starting to think, Hey, maybe we, you know, could re-examine some of these things that we've decided we've done forever. You know, I don't know that like, and, and that is cool. Like, you know, that is one of the things that I'm lucky enough to do in my role as a teacher is to participate in some really good conversations about how we teach music 
and why we teach music and all that stuff. Um, but the how is, is, is super interesting for me too, I think just um, because it's, you know, it pertains really to like how we are communicating with students and then like, you know, what we are communicating to them, like, and why it's important, you know, like I could tell a six-year-old student, like, you know, you have to sit up this way or you're going to get carpal tunnel and like, they won't know what carpal or tunnel is, you know, like, but like, you know, so that, that doesn't mean anything to them, but to an adult student, if I tell them that they're like, oh yeah, well, okay, of course I have to sit up straight. You know, like if I tell a six-year-old, like you have to sit up straight and do it this way, because then it means you can make a bigger sound. Right. And like that, that'll like scare your cats even more or something. And they're like, yeah, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so like, you know, now I'm into this. So I don't know. I think there's, it's a, it can be a really interesting, again, yeah, that's just where, where uh, elements of teaching have really like kind of bled over into my larger sort of framework a little bit, I guess. But yeah, no, that's dope. I'm sure like this idea of like, you know, communicating at the meeting somebody where they are in order to communicate effectively, I think is really important. Like it's a really important skill to have. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, I, I like, I'm sure I make a lot of like dumb, I'm not a dad, but I'm sure I make a lot of what are seen like dad jokes too, especially in my younger students. And like, that's okay. I'm okay with like being a little corny if it, if it helps to get the point across, you know? And I think like, that is probably something that I've learned from magic is that it's okay to look a little bit ridiculous in the service of your goals. Oh sometimes. yeah. If you don't look <laughs> stupid doing it, you might not be doing it. Right. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, there, there, there often is like a, um, I think maybe this gets back to vulnerability, sure. right? There's this element of silliness and you have to be okay with like that, that sort of vulnerability of like, yeah, this is like kind of ridiculous or whatever, but like also it's a thing. So I don't know. Yep. Yeah. Like I had, you know, one, one student who, uh, you know, like I was leaning in to like point to something on the page and then she like got a real close look at like some gray hairs that are in the front of my head. And she's like, you're like a million years old. And I'm like a million and one. And that was like, the, <laughs> that was the best thing that I could do to save my pride. But also like it, it totally scored, you know? So like, I think it, um, yeah. Anyway, hey dude, wear those things with fucking pride. Absolutely. They're a mark of distinction. Hell yeah. Yeah, made it, made it, made it <laughs> this far, and then also had some genetics accidents that happened too. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think gray hair is rad. So, yeah, I mean, I mean totally feel however you want, but like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I feel like I could probably keep you here all evening and talk about music forever, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that because I know that we have things to do. Um, but before I let you go, would you mind telling everybody, like, where can they find your stuff? Um, sure. So, yeah, I guess I do have a lot of projects, as you said. Um, so probably the best way to find them is if you search my full name, which is Adam Matlock, uh, and that's M-A-T-L-O-C-K, uh, .bandcamp.com. And that's like an index page that links to uh, like 30 other sites that where I have music hosted. And a lot of it is, you know, this kind of like, dungeon synth music which is you know it's like a very particular aesthetic um but it's super important to me a lot of it is um you know some songs that i've written and some like more kind of classical composition type things and some of it's like ambient stuff i don't know so it's a kind of a kind of a good mix but i would love it if you popped over there and checked something out yeah fuck yeah and there'll definitely be a link in the show notes to that and if you just do a regular internet search you can see a bunch of rad pictures of adam rocking out on the accordion which is also fun (laughs) Yes, make, yeah, I uh, I've, I need to compile some of those and and also like you know I'm like 
I have, I, there was a, this should probably be cut, but I, I used to like, I had a singing face that was like, you know, people used to say it was like, is that your O face or something like that? And it's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> like why do people always photograph me? Like, you know, while I'm like, you know, at, at the peak of a song, like mouth wide open, like eyes bulging type shit, you know, it's like, oh fuck man. Like, so anyway. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's the moment that moved them. I maybe. Yeah. It could be. <laughs> I'll take it. All right. Yeah. Photography is a whole other topic. We'll have to talk to the photographers about that. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and enlighten me about some of this stuff. I definitely want to pick your brain more in the future about like music theory and a lot of other things. But um, yes, I'm hoping this will not be the last that we hear from you. I, I would. I would hope not. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, fuck yeah, dude. Take right. care. You too. All right. Fuck yeah. Thanks again so much to Adam Matlock, aka An Historic. Check his stuff out at adammatlock.bandcamp.com and there will be a link to that in the show notes as well as a list of the songs which are included in this episode so yeah definitely go to the bandcamp buy his stuff check it out good stuff all right as promised i will share some musings about making art and magic in just a second um, but there's just a few things that i'd like to take care of first um, I wanted to say thank you so much for listening. I always welcome people's thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or arcane revelations. You can reach me, as always, at luxacultpod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Instagram at luxacultpod. You can follow the Green Mushroom Project at HyphoSigil. All right, and if you like the show and if you like my other work, you can support it on Patreon. And if you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me in which I will perform a bibliomancy reading for you using the same roll tables that I do here on the show. And there are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. Thank you so much to those of you who are already doing so. Your support really means the fucking world to me. So thank you. Um, if you want to help the show in a way that doesn't involve money, you can tell a friend or a bitter rival about it or write a review, which I guess is like super important or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, I appreciate the support in whatever form it comes. So thank you so much. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Dave Audrey from Unearthing Paranormalcy podcast, as well as Shane Thomas and Joy the Sporceress for their hard work on putting together some very fun green mushroom guided meditations and stuff. These are kind of like in the preliminary stages of being produced, but we're really looking forward to all of them. Um, I think that one of the things that has been coolest about the project for me, maybe, well, there's been a lot of fucking cool things, but this is one of them. Ranking them seems stupid and arbitrary, so scratch that anyway. But so like one of the cool things um, for me is to see like the different ways that the work is like sort of expressed through different people. Like it's all has like a sort of like similar vibe or whatever. I don't know, but everyone like brings their own flavor to it, which is dope. You know, a variety of flavors can be delicious, right? So as I said earlier, much love, respect, and reciprocity to everyone working on the project, regardless of how that looks for you in your practice. 
Uh, for more information about the Green Mushroom Project, you can check out the links in the show notes. You can hang out with us on Friday nights on the Faithline Council podcast Discord server as well. All right. And so speaking of that, um, I want to give a shout out to Dreadnought from Faithline Council podcast, who is needing to step away for some, you know, personal life reasons. We all wish him well and God's speed in his endeavors. We're hoping that things will chill out and he'll be able to return to podcasting soon, whenever that works. But in the meantime, we will be sending spores his way. And um, Faithline Council podcast will continue. I know there's a few like recorded episodes yet to be released, so definitely keep an eye out for that. Uh, speaking of which, don't miss all of the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We've got Ad Hoc History, Administrism, Unearthing Paranormalcy, and Smuts Up Podcast. Okay, so as I promised, here are some, I don't know, perhaps circular musings, uh, I don't know, un- unclear, about this idea of magic versus art and product versus process. I think it can be, like, incredibly difficult, if not entirely unfeasible, to draw a clear distinction between magic and art. Uh, This is actually probably a much stronger stance than I usually prefer to take on a lot of philosophical issues. Uh, So this could be surprising to people that know me well, but anyway, after giving it some careful thought, I think I've done a pretty okay job of convincing myself with the following line of reasoning. But I would love to hear your thoughts about this, obviously. You can hit me up um, at luxacultpod on Instagram or luxacultpod at gmail.com. All right, so we sometimes talk about making art with like a magical intent. Things like sound sigils or talismanic paintings or like hyper sigils or whatever. From a sort of like top-down perspective, this is done by instilling the work with what is sometimes called one's magical intent. Adam actually, like, touched on this earlier during the interview, too, like, which was awesome. Like, I guess that this idea probably goes back to, like, the Western occultism definition of magic, like, sort of as he touched on, like, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, magic being, like, that which changes the world in conformity with one's will. All right, so... For the new sound magic project I'm working on, I've decided to put like a sigilistic or sigilized poem in each track, which is an idea inspired by something that Yaramarod from Faithline Council wrote recently. So I found like reading about this process that he outlined like really interesting because it revealed to me something interesting about my own way of doing things like in relation to how others do them. So like what he had, like, laid out as, like, a means of, like, writing magical poetry was, like, sort of a description of, like, how I, like, worked, you know, in general, like, which I thought was really interesting. And it revealed that, like, even though it seems like people are doing something similar, like, there can be a lot of ways that you depart in terms of, like, the actual, like, philosophical approach. But anyway, not to get sidetracked with that, like, anyway... From this, like, sort of perspective, though, this, like, kind of, like, top-down perspective, to make magical, quote, art, you can imbue it with a magical intent that will link it to a result, right? This is sort of, like, in a loose way, the definition of ritual, too. 
So you could think about the process of making this art to be ritualistic in nature as well, were you so inclined. But let's look at it from another perspective now, like a sort of like bottom-up approach, if you will. When we make art, it often has these like sort of like emergent properties. And I know Adam and I did talk about this earlier, like meaning that what we end up with is often very different and maybe more complex or interesting than what we like initially set out to create. Further, you know, it could be argued also that the art of scratching a glyph in the dirt or sand or anywhere is like at its heart a magical one. Like written information, you know, particularly the alphabet, is arguably the most fundamental and perhaps important magical technology that we have. Okay, but what about magical intent? Like, do we have to have intent to have magic? Do we have magic without intent? I don't know. A lot of folks say no. A lot of folks say yes. Some say maybe. I have no fucking idea. It's just a question of, you know, semantics to me at that point. But like, I think I would argue that art is made for a purpose, right? An intent, perhaps. You know, like all of it, like upon which like other purposes or intents might be stacked. So throughout history, a lot of art was made for like spiritual or religious purposes, which of course, you know, is magical or at least magic adjacent perhaps in nature. But for modern people, art can be made to like point out a perspective or to disrupt or to entice or entrance or or whatever, you know. But it seems to me that under all of these purposes is another one which, you know, they're all predicated upon. And this has to do with connection, not just the sort of like yearning to connect with each other, which is like definitely, at least for me, at play. But like, no, this is like below even like that kind of level like this has to do with like art being a sort of like bridge between our inner selves and like you know our interiority or our self or selves itself <laughs> if that makes sense um and also and the world you know the outside world the world in which we operate so like it's a way of making our experiences real for ourselves by like putting them out there into the world that we, so we can see them And maybe, like, being able to share a bit of that understanding with others that have, like, encountered similar things, perhaps. Okay, so I'll freely admit that if you look closely at what I've just said, you'll probably find some places uh, that, you know, I've played a little fast or loose with the argument. But, you know, I do like this notion, and I do find it useful, so for now I'm going to entertain it, right? Okay, so for instance, there's this idea of the self presented in the book, I Am a Strange Loop by Douglas Hofstetter, in which the idea of the self is seen to be a sort of pattern that exists both in our minds and in the minds of those who know us or perhaps know about us. Okay, so then the process of making art could also be viewed as one means by which the self unfolds and becomes manifest in the world. So through the mechanisms of, like, recursivity and reflection, the sort of, like, feedback loops created between the, like, observer and the observed, the subjects and the objects. So this process of creating art can be viewed not just as expressing the self, but also as, like, generating it. So through the process of art, we produce ourselves, perhaps. 
Okay, so just real quick, I would like to bring us back to the relationship between art and magic once more, so I can point out that, like, a magical or spiritual practice can be like this as well, like a way to, like, recreate yourself or to create yourself or to express yourself or whatever. One way that I like to conceptualize this in the paradigm that I'm working in right now is with Hikate, who I'm sure everybody has heard me talk about, the goddess of magic also sometimes talked about as being the mother of witches. So one thing I love about like this particular idea is the recursivity of it. So like through the gifts of this, you know, like quote, like mother, right, which is magic, through magic, we're granted the agency of giving birth to ourselves. So yes, don't forget that you can decide who you are to yourself through this kind of process. All right, I could go on and on, but instead I'll just say this. Remember to resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path. better times. Alright, fuck yeah. Much love, stay strong, and stay fucking curious. We're gonna go out here on another dope track from Adam, aka Anhistoric. This is What Has the Wood Ear Heard from the album The Herbalists. (laughs) Alright, fuck yeah. Enjoy, and keep kicking ass.
Deluxe Occult is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com. It's the Sex Positive Comedy Show your parents forgot to warn you about. I will be a delightful host, Deep Weird, and with me are my three very sexy friends. I'm Captain Spanx, dropping anchor. It's a I spanker! Hi, I'm Raven Gunnigan, and I'm about to eat 16 feet of nerds, bro. And I'm Luxa, and that is all you get to know about me. <laughs> Join us for a ride full of twists and turns as we explore the rabbit hole that is human sexuality. I, Smuts Up Crew, would like to propose... Oh my god, he's proposing. A question! Get down on your fucking knees! (laughs) If you're curious about expanding your horizons or getting more comfortable in your own skin, then the Smuts Up Podcast is for you. Or maybe you're just a horny nerd or a person who enjoys outdated references. The Smuts Up Podcast is fun for the whole step family. I'm gonna say the B word. (laughs) Butthole sunning. If you were to put a hot dog in it, is it a sandwich? I don't know. Is a bread dilder with a hot dog inside it a sandwich? Write to us at smutsup69 at gmail.com and let us know what you think about that. Available on your favorite podcast apps. I put a D20 in my mouth. Nailed it.